Welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I, of course, am Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Um, thank you for joining us for a very special episode. As if you had listened last week, we teased. If you didn't listen last week, surprise, it's a special episode. Um, well, every episode's a special episode. Aww. Aww. That, that's sweet. That's so sweet. That's, Why are you kissing our asses? I'm just I'm just pointing out the, the obvious right Oh, here. I see. Okay. You waited a while. Um, before we get into this week's album, um, I just want to plug... Um, this week's Crash Chords autographs, which if you're listening the day this came out, um, was this past Tuesday. Featured the delightful Grace Kendall, who was originally a wizard rocker under the band name Snidget, and then transferred from that to performing under her muggle name. Um, does ukulele folk music, is very sweet, very kind. Her music has great messaging. It's fun. Um, check out the interview. It was a blast to get to catch up with her because I haven't spoken to her in a while. Um, so check that out. Um, it's, I believe, episode 39. We're approaching the big 4-0 for uh, autographs, which is exciting. Aww. Uh, All right. Okay, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I don't, okay. Everything is an event. Um, so, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what we're doing this week and why we're going out of order. Well, this week uh, we actually had a day off when our recording day. Our recording day is Monday. Dating content. Anyway, um, since we had the day off, we could tackle a project I was meaning to bring to us for a very long time. Well, it seems like a very long time. It's been like six months. Yeah, well, no, it seems like it's been eons. <laughs> Steam Powered Giraffe has been on this podcast twice already. They came out with a new album. I had to do a new album. Not just because, well, it's a band that collectively we all really seem to love. Maybe not love love the way I do, but we love this, this band. So when they decided to do a new album, it's the sort of thing, yeah, okay gotta do it. We've done it with other bands such as They Might Be Giants, another band we just love. But this was also something of a, of a little more curious than previous albums. This was a two-disc piece. It was also being billed as a space opera. It was right up front going to be a concept album. Something with a through line, with a story, with, with something more to it than just the music. And that, separate from the band itself, just is very enticing for me. Something I want to sink my teeth into because other bands that have done concept albums, like American Idiot is one album from recent years that I love going back to because it is a story album. When Green Day did it, they dropped something that was so unlike their previous work yet still harken back to so much of their previous stuff. I, I immediately latched onto it. So when one of my newest favorite bands did this, I had to. There's no other way for me to really describe it. This was just inevitable for me. That being said, Steam Power Giraffe has been very endearing because of its concept, because of its vocals, because of just the stylistic choices they've always had in their music. They've always been sort of folky, borderline rock in so many of the things they do. But evolutionarily, from the first album, through the Two Cent Show, through Mark III, they've kind of evolved. Not to say that they've really changed too much, it's more like their, their sound has gone from the vaudeville to the more circus act and bigger show to Broadway in Mark III. I'm kind of curious as to see what an actual opera idea would present. So, there we go. 
Well, first we got to apologize in advance for the incomplete Bandcamp embedding in the show notes for this episode. Normally, of course, the Crash Chords podcast mandate is that when we analyze an album, the album must be streamable at the time we publish. Because the point is to encourage audience participation and afford them the ability to follow along with the albums they've already purchased and love to death, and also with the albums they may never purchase, but are still intrigued by. Intrigued enough, perhaps, to join in the analytical excursion, and if you so desire, to comment angrily as to why you'd never purchase it in a million years. Although truthfully, owing to the nature of what we do, we always encourage a more level-headed approach. Actually, take a tip from Star F, who commented on episodes 148 and 168. He knows the score, and he's a model commenter. Go right now. Check him out. Absorb him. But we're not going to wait for you. There's, there's a pause button. We've got stuff to yeah. do. Yeah. We realize today is, of course, a rare exception to this rule. We provided the limited Bandcamp selection that was available. It's always up to the artist as to whether they wish to make their music available for free. It's, of course, of no major obligation to them. Some decline out of principle, but with many artists, it's just a matter of time. They see how sales go, and then eventually it gets submitted. Judging from the fact that today's artist has provided their prior discography to Spotify, I suspect that's the case here. Nevertheless, today's participation will be limited to those who have bought and purchased or can follow along to the album through some other means. So why do this at all? I just wanted to say that uh, with Mark III, it didn't actually end up being on Bandcamp, uh, Bandcamp completely or Spotify for months and months after the release. Mark III is on now, but at the time we reviewed it, it was not it was on Spotify. Right. So, yeah, the way I'm optimistic. I'm sure, who knows, people who follow this episode like a year from now, wait, hey, it's pillar content. You can, you can play us whenever. So publishing isn't really all that important. But apart from this being John's selection, and John, of course, gets to pick whatever we do, regardless of whether doing it the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time, whatever. Eh, Although we'll I hope you yeah, won't be won't. that greedy. I it mean, depends. John picked it the first time then for Two Cent Show. Then Nelson Lugo joined us for his second appearance on the podcast and brought us... And he us, picked it before I could pick it. And brought us their third record, and so now John is evening the score by bringing the fourth record. I believe that in general, most, most bands, we should probably keep it to like two albums, just not to overdo it and keep repeating content. In fact, the only other artist that we've ever repeated three times uh, was the abominable Uno Dos Tre trilogy <laughs> by Green Day, which you could consider as one product. But we even only insisted upon doing that merely to be completionists. And by the way, if you disagree that they were abominable, you're more than welcome to take that as your cue to comment angrily. I welcome the debate. Well, then again, also, the Gorillas are, I believe, coming out with a new album, so it's not like we're not going to see another artist on for, I believe, a third, maybe fourth time. I I've already lost track. It'll be a, a third time. We did Damon Albarn's solo album first, which I believe I brought. Then we did Blur album, which I also brought, and you can bet your ass I will bring the Gorillas album, since that is my favorite of the three versions of Damon Albarn. Let's see, it's a different artist. It is, technically. So that counts. Um, but yeah, why review Steam Powered Giraffe, who is the same artist, and, well, although they have gone through different members, you could argue that is a technicality. That's true. But why review them three times? <laughs> Apart from John's selection that he gets to just have because it's his week, uh, call it a bit of harmless fun on our part, spurred by the fact that Steam Powered Giraffe pulled a grade A marketing stunt in their last album, Mark III. They threw us a f***ing stinger that their next album would be, as they put it, IN SPACE! Which made us also curious. Yes. Of course, that stunt was indicative of their background. Their music is theatrically minded. All current members and those who have ever been a part of SPG are born showmen. Their aesthetic is just as much bound to their vaudevillian nature as it is to their image. Their image, of course, being proudly steampunk. And if you don't know what steampunk is, I don't know how you ended up downloading this episode. Uh, surely the aesthetic is not for everyone, but also not a reason to avoid the band. 
Uh, and if you want a little more on steampunk, check out any episode we did with the fabulous Painless Parker, who I believe this on his second appearance went into detail a bit about steampunk. In fact, I believe when we interviewed his project with the full band, the Wasties, we went into a whole segue somewhere midway through the episode, episode 44, and Painless Parker episode 63 and or episode 132. I need a life. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. With Steam Powered Giraffe, it, it can be for other people, I believe. Yeah, and here's, here's a link. Here's a, a quick description that they provide on their website just to see whether this is something that might intrigue you or not. Steam Powered Giraffe is a San Diego-based band of three movement artists and musicians portraying malfunctioning antique musical robots. With backgrounds in improv, street busking, musical theater, mime, puppetry, illustration, and video production, the performers have created a unique act that has entertained thousands upon thousands for seven years, which is really promotional. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they're pretty popular in their circles, and they have a very devoted fan base, which wraps us around again to why we accepted not being able to offer our listeners a streamable source. And that's because we feel the, the people who are probably willing to engage in this particular uh, Steam Power Giraffe discussion, one which might be actually our most ambitious of the three, considering it is a double-disc disc, disc uh, will probably be from the fan crowd, the die-hard fan crowd that the artists have expertly cultivated. But does that mean that we're going to sit here and satiate the fan crowd in our analysis of Steam Power Giraffe's latest space theme album, The Vice Quadrant? The jury is still out, and you'll have to stick around. Um, I do want to point out very briefly before we get into it, I love that every one of their albums relate to the number album it is. Like, I've made that comment a bunch of times. Every time we read it, like Two Cent Show, Mark Three, and now the Vice Quadrant, Quadrant Four. Uh, oh, yeah. That's because quadrants are routinely, especially in space, divided into four different areas. For a second, I thought you just had a stroke on quad. Quad. No, no, no. You cannot. Do I'm not mac- malfunctioning like um, like rabbit does. But um, I guess we should get the show on the road, as they say. Yeah. Uh, all together, what are we looking at here? Twenty eight tracks. Correct. Two discs, each fourteen tracks. All right. So. The word disc. So what we mean by disc, kids, is before <laughs> stuff was streamable and MP3 format. We used to get them on these things, music on these things called CDs, and sometimes there wasn't enough room on one CD for all the music. No, no, so no. then we which, got which seems weird in and of itself, but because flash drives can fit forever music. <laughs> so discs would be double discs. We'd get two CDs packed with music. So yes, obviously when I downloaded this through Bandcamp, as you do, um, it's just 28 tracks. There's no separator for the discs, but on their site and on Wikipedia, you can find the actual breakdown of each disc, which is split 14, which is important for the narrative. Um, So we are getting into disc one, track one. So try and follow along. And there is indeed a narrative, which John will try and help us. I'll I'll slowly let it emerge from the music itself. We're not going to call it from the beginning. Well, I'm going to try to forcefully put it in there in the places as well. It is is published. It's it's on Reddit, but let's see what we can decipher ourselves as well. Track one, The Vice Does Type. So the minute the song starts, we get some interesting, ominous, like, Theremin and synth work, or it could just be all synth, but it does have a theremin feel. It does really begin like an 80s horror movie uh-huh. in a way. Um, the kind of track that really actually makes me wonder what their influences are. And forgetting the fact that we have reviewed the band um, twice before, you'd think you kind of know where they're sitting. John introduced them as being a kind of like folk rock oriented thing. 
they really branch out beyond that. It's it's not just that. It's 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 whatever they need to use at at this particular time. And considering they approach the sort of space opera vibe, they have to incorporate elements of the 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 horror, the feeling of being alone, the feeling of the vastness. And I think they all encapsulated this pretty well within these opening few seconds. But it's so clearly labeled within the 1980s, 1970s style of space exploration. They're not going modern day. I mean, I'd see more of this in, in along the lines of Star Trek or Ridley Scott than anything else. They, yeah, they have a retro feel. I mean, exactly. I, it's it's indicative of their their musical styles as well. Here we're getting the creepy woos kind of an idea <laughs> that you would well have said. heard. That's exactly what it is. There's no other way to describe it. You're getting. Very, very finalized pacing with everything, with the the way that they're uh, singing. You're getting a single electric strumming line that that builds into the the track as it goes along. That is very pointed. That is very paced and very indicative, just of a single idea that you would have gotten in in 1970s, 1980s opening music tracks to horror movies, to space exploration, to that sort of genre. It all goes back to that that theater element, the fact that they have performed many of these tracks and they kind of almost, they really intend them to be performed live. Obviously most musicians should probably consider that somewhere in their in their uh, their inspiration, the fact that, well, at some point you're going to need to do this on a stage, so how are you going to structure this and, and connect it to following tracks? It's not just the studio project, but in, in Steam Powered Giraffe's case, it's, it's, I think, very foremost on their mind. The I almost get a sense that this album here is like an afterthought to something that would be much grander and much more, dare I say, epic, because after all, it is an album that is entitled The Vice Quadrant. I mean, that sounds like the best title to a sci-fi movie that I've probably heard in 30 years. Um, I don't know how it would turn out as a sci-fi movie. It sounds like the kind of thing that maybe could have the potential to flop, but the title itself is freaking awesome. Um, and of course, there is the, the, the disparity here between the idea that, well, if you're going to have a theatrical act next to, let's say, a just musician doing their thing who intend to just release albums and go on tour. They almost seem like separate art forms, the Broadway versus just the the, the artist, the musician making their, their own way. Um, and I almost kind of considered that but in going in this for, into this for the third time that maybe we would have the problem of finding that maybe the shtick had worn off on us a little bit that it would come across as just a little bit hokey but certainly by the time you hear the vocals and you hear the talent within the first few seconds it's not a novelty they own it they own it every single step of the way um at least as far as presentation is concerned we are still at, after all at exposition the vocals i always enjoyed their vocals but it Besides uh, David and Isabel Bennett, the original founding members, or at least two of the original founding members, they've remained the same. Samuel Luke, who plays Hatchworth, he's been the newest of voices to come to the scene. In Mark III, I found the vocals with which Hatchworth complimenting Rabbit in the Spine to really be my favorite combination of the three. Because while uh, David and Isabel have very similar mid-range Mm -hmm. uh, on their actual vocal scale, Sam always has like a weird lilt to everything. It's it's he's got that little bit of frog in the throat. I believe that's how I described him in the previous album, and I've, I've always enjoyed that. But when they're working in tandem, like in this track, it just works so well. And here they wanted to go for creepy, and their harmonies are doing great creep. I just want to say though that it's not creepy the whole song. After about fifty seconds of the intro, when the vocals do come in, it breathes a little bit. It airs out and feels just kind of spacey. But very quickly after that, comes back to that kind of creepy vibe. But 
also throughout the song, the lyrics do like pose almost like big question wonderment and even some fear, which fits the tone that the music is giving. There must be something. There must be something more to life than this vice. There must be something more to life that we can't even know. Maybe somewhere on a purple shore beyond the status quo. The lights from Mars. Well, we've seen it before. The telescopes tell us it's true. A cluster of stars bringing woe and such pain. What's a poor little planet to do? Really, really beautiful writing, and uh, it's uh, that is a big question to ask right up front. After all, you need to reimmerse yourself into the fact that these are characters, and they are they are they're robots. They're antique robots. They are starting to, I guess, feel the the pains of being an antique robot. That they were that they were constructed some time long ago, and they're not in constant use anymore. Well, then what are they for, and what are they to do? Um, it's it's an interesting little narrative that we really just don't get in a lot of bands and a lot of in a lot of artists in general. They don't c construct fiction necessarily. More than not, they're constructing extrapolations from reality, say something that genuinely affected them. And of course, here you still get the sense that, that was probably the initial inspiration, but then it's all filtered through this lens of a fiction that I think you could really get into and certainly would be a very immersive live. Yeah, I mean, and the, there's never been a shortage with SPG for narrative and for story and for excitement. And then and the fact that they're phenomenal vocalists, yeah. it just kind of sells it alone. And what what really goes into it is in the chorus, the vice does tight and the vice does bite, and we will not slip from its fiery grip. And the vice does thrive, though it's been deprived, and the vice will gnaw with its cosmic maw. It's setting up the vice quadrant as a villain idea as opposed to an exploration idea. I mean, there is some hope involved with it with that idea of there must be something more but the vice quadrant is very heavily handed being designed as a evil place as a dangerous place a place where things don't go well for people but that's very scientific i mean often in science specifically the things that cause us the most wonder interest and fascination are the most terrifying you know the vacuum of space poisonous creatures and, and like these things that you don't understand, or even in nature, like hot lava and volcanoes and natural disasters, like all of these things scientifically can be fascinating and also absolutely terrifying. I think that's a, you know even more broader sense. I think that's the story of the human experience and the idea that we are a we are a race of explorers and we will, regardless of the risks, we want to really traverse the cutting edge of what we know. And it's it is both terrifying and uh, enthralling at the same time. And uh, Apparently, this poor antique robot is discovering this for himself, and you get to discover it through him. It's really a, it's really pretty amazing. And also, um, it it this this generally does live up to the whole rock opera feel, um, the classic rock opera feel, which certainly we don't get a lot of nowadays. It seemed to kind of die there for a long while, and this is uh this shows promise of 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 reviving that a little bit, even down to the very last uh, two chords, or rather the second to last two chords, was just this great segue where it shifted the whole tone of this, and it was a very theatrical thing in itself. It's just those those last uh, second to last two chords, they kind of pivot this song on its head before we finally dive into the next track. Um, is there actually only one other band that comes to mind that does uh, rock operas like this at all, and if you know Steam Power Giraffe, you probably know these guys because they're more nerd-focused. They're called the Proto-Men, and their shtick is they do rock... Every album is a rock opera about Mega Man, from, you know, Mega Man X to the old Mega Man's mm -hmm. video games, and 
Did they every, do every boss? <laughs> and it's well, it's it, it's more the story of Mega Man and from his perspective, but it's this it's still delivered in this epic rock opera feel. And I don't really they're the only band I really know who do that all the time. So it's cool to get an album from a band I like doing it at least this one time. All right, well, let's look at track two. Um, yes, we're only on two. Uh, on a crescendo, um, which obviously, using the, the musical metaphor there, you're on the rise. It's getting louder. Things are getting bigger. Um, but I do have to say, this kind of ruined the spell just a little for me because considering everything we just said about rock opera, this did take a little bit of a step back because as beautiful as the, vo the vocals are here, the chord progression itself, at least in the beginning here, didn't really get interesting until about two minutes in. Until then, it's mostly just this pop, uplifting track with a very standard four chord progression, uh, almost akin to The Scientist by Coldplay. I kind of got that vibe, and uh, it would maybe be weaker if it wasn't for the vocals. Well, see, that's just a thing for me. The reason that this song starting the way it did didn't pull me out was because it, of course, starts with the smooth solo vocals of The Spine, who is my favorite singer in the band. And the way he delivers the power of his voice, I'm hooked in. I do agree that the guitar did was strummy and kind of did feel a little simple, but... I I could listen to the spine read the phone book or sing the phone book in that case, and I'd probably still be into if it. If it hasn't yet been mentioned, the spine has the widest widest range, I'd say, of all singers. He's of the human race. I of I the human say. race. Okay. Well, he's um, a robot, so don't. Count. Uh, technically, it doesn't. True. Count. That's right. Oh, <laughs> sorry, spine. Well, it's not just him beautifully singing, and I will always listen to him sing. Of course, I'm right there with you, Matt. But I'm really digging the imagery of this song. Before long. They will build a city along all the sky and anchor it tight to this rock so we can sail right out of here. Phone nights fade right into our existence as we travel up the tethers, start to float a little as we reach our end. The sky bleeds, we mend it near the constellations, the dying giants feel their fears slowly get built away today. All us in our own known lives now have a chance to shine bright and we will all be dancing in that light. Dancing in that light, dancing in that light. I love what he's saying. So uh, it's starting slow. It, it's starting with just an acoustic guitar, very strummy. Me, I'm, 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 in, I'm seeing the picture he's painting here. All, all valid. I, my only issue was just the avenue in the very, very beginning here, because of course the, the track title is painting the picture just on a crescendo. I expect it to be positive. The lyrics are very positive and very beautiful. I just thought that 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 the the particular route that they chose was just slightly generic, coming from what we had just had. I kind of wanted something maybe a little bit more fanciful. Let's say. Uh, I know the, the, the analogy might be a little strange, but just like picture, you know, the moment when Luke Skywalker is staring up at the double sun, the Tatooine sunset, that I, I wanted something a little more wholesome like that. If you're going to look toward the bright side, I feel like maybe that's something to emulate, something more hopeful with a little more vastness to it, as opposed to four chord progression, which I can find in no short supply. But there is a build to the track. New elements are introduced, and that's why it's on a crescendo instead of the crescendo. It, it, it has that sort of feel that you're going to something big. Well, let me move to that two-minute mark, because I will admit that at this moment it does start to take on a new kind of depth, and this is where I kind of did get that, that 
that symbol of of the the double sun. It felt it felt like that was kind of starting to to take shape here uh, in their own way. The shift is really hard to describe, and it's also very very enigmatic. But I like m- musical moments like that. I like things that are a little bit difficult to place, especially the feeling of because of course, considering everything we just said in the first track, we do have a lot of of mixing and blending between the fear and the hope. All of that is just kind of rolled into one. So of course, this should be something that musically is a little bit more difficult to place. You don't know which will pan out. I also like that as the song goes on, like John said, the ballad fills out more. It it never gets overly complicated or cacophonous. It, it stays in a similar place for the, the duration of the song. And considering what comes next when we get to that, I feel like it makes sense. I hear Steve's complaints. I just feel like considering the rest of the record and at least the rest of this first quadrant, uh, I would say, or first quarter of the record, uh, it makes sense in context, even though in the moment it may not as much. All right, well, let's look at something else that we get here, because uh, obviously they move through a lot of different musical styles, and sometimes they choose a more pop avenue, sometimes it's a little more rock-oriented. Track three, Steam Junk. Um, I like a few things here. I like the fact that you have sort of this chromatic bass line sort of creeping in, combined with this whammy guitar that makes it feel a little bit more intense. Like, things are starting to build in, maybe this is where they start to enter the narrative. Like, we've just had introduction and setup material. The, the character is being is being painted before our eyes in tracks one and two, and you shouldn't take it quite so seriously. Here, things are getting a little more uh, a little more imminent. Um, but the verse is is fairly unique, and in, in the sense that it has regained the rock opera feel. Um, Hatsworth is the primary vocalist here, and as he sings, you get this strange combination of metal on one hand, a kind of guitar drone with this rapid atmospheric picking, that, that's how that's what forms a, a drone sound in the background, and then combine that with like a southern gothic feel, and even combine that with, with indie rock, and all of this kind of just blends to form their own version of the rock opera. It's, it's quite interesting. But that a lot of that takes a backseat when the vocals really step in, and it becomes more of a bass and drum show. And I, I'm I'm enjoying that because that's my draw. That's what the band really banks upon is his vocals more than anything else. They love True. to showcase their vocals. The sky is blue. Their vocals are good. Move on. I know. Kind of I know. <laughs> but they're specifically taking a step back with all the other instrumentation, just having the percussion and the lower register being the forefront of propelling uh, Sam Luke's vocals to the crowd to the audience yeah i think i think it would be more um appropriate or just more observational let's say just if you're going to to bring out the vocals to really really isolate the uh the way in which they dissect it the way in which they voice lead for instance it's not just a matter of being great vocalists you need to compose for that and that's something that we often find uh lacking in a lot of other cases where we pull the same routine. Oh yeah, the, the sky is blue, this particular <sighs> artist has a great voice, sure. But is the melody good? Is the, right, is, the sure. is it is it blended well? Is is it really well written? And especially if there's harmonies, are, the, are they well written? We have those issues. Here, it is almost never an issue, and that's really, I think, why we emphasize their vocals so much. Particularly in that moment where he even overlaps the word I in the chorus. I must carry on until the last drop. I must never stop until I am steam junk. And it's just that word I that he they break apart between all the different vocalists and one is I, 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 and you hear it in, in many different, uh, I think the same pitch, but in many different uh, timbres. 
um because they are all very they all bring their own unique timbre to the table it's 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 really quite fascinating it makes it it made it a more engaging melody for me some of my favorite moments in their songs in songs past is when they do that because they are known to do that either staggering it or doing it uh in tandem and furthermore it matches their their narrative and it matches their 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 fiction the yeah. idea that well they're not just doing that to to be cute in melody writing they're doing that because that's the robot stuttering they actually that's a stick of theirs is that in many melodies you'll hear this soaring beautiful uh beautiful beautiful phrase and then all of a sudden you get a yeah yeah kind of a moment. he just throws in this little moment of what, stuttering because it he's, he's a robot it's not even stuttering it's more along the lines of old school war game style well, it's of glitching. what people exactly it's that's like exactly the robot having a glitch um i also really like that we were talking about the bass earlier that as the song goes on it gets a lot more melodic to mix with the metallic feeling guitar work I think that the thing that this song really does for me as a whole is that it feels like we're back to the adventure. The first track was an introduction, the second track was kind of just a fun little jaunt, and now we're back to the adventure, which is what I go to Steam Power Giraffe for. I love that sense of adventure that they convey. Songs like that we talked to death about, like Rex Marksley, which is literally a story of adventuring. Um, here, it just it has that adventure energy, even though the song itself is not describing an adventure per se. Yeah, while while also still sounding like just a great rock track, I sounded like something I could also find like drone wise, like off an Interpol record or something like that. So it fits in so many wonderful places. Uh, let's go to track four, Starburner. So what I want to say is, track two we had um, the spine taking the spotlight, Steam Junk we had Hatchworth taking the spotlight. Now we have the delightful Rabbit taking the spotlight here, to, at least in the start for sure. Um, feels very ballady in the beginning. Um, but, you know, it moves to kind of, when we get to the chorus, is a hokier kind of sing-along feel, like kids sing-along feel. Yeah. But in the start, there's a little more heart, and it feels very much, you know, like a, a standard ballad, sort of trying to hit that, that wired wrong or honeybee lightning again, um, which, which, I mean, I will not talk down because both of those songs are fantastic, so trying to capture that again is perfectly natural. Absolutely, uh, but certainly following up on, on what you were saying about the fact that it starts to sound just a little bit corny, I mean, here's the thing, the opening chords, it, it, it started to take on a more acoustic air, which is a logical direction, of course, if you're going to have a rock opera, it doesn't have to be all all, you know, epic at once. Frankly, I'd rather it not be because the word is getting tiresome. So this was a little more reserved. It's more of an acoustic intro and the chords, once again, the harmonies, they're beautiful, they're expert, lasted for about 44 seconds. And then suddenly it's just sort of a strummy, I don't know, get to know your neighbor kind of, I don't know, I can't even describe why this just sort of rubbed me the wrong way. It was just a little bit too, I guess, hokey maybe is the term. Well, maybe it's that's the redundant. back and forth nature of it. They, Let me they just kinda... say, maybe that's redundant for them. I don't want to say hokey for them because I think <clears throat> they intentionally do go on stage with a little bit of a, a oh, hokey yeah. air. They like have something going... to do. They know what they're doing. And it's because of the whole idea of characterization of their of themselves both on stage and in their music, I mean, it's going to come across that right. way. Right. I just don't like the potential of something to, to be robbed. That That's what it came down to. Well, I also, you got to look at this as well as the previous two tracks in a very specific light in my eyes. On a crescendo is introducing one character. Steam Junk is introducing a second. And here, Starburner, we're getting a third. None of these characters are the major characters we're really seeing yet. At least not in this iteration. Steam Junk is Wink the Satellite, which comes up later in the album. 
Starburner shows up multiple times, and on a crescendo is really another character that ends up being called the Astronaut. And he's going to be playing a fairly important role. They're all going to be playing a very important role for this story. But this role isn't really quite there yet. It's not as clear-cut as we can really... as you can see in retrospect. That said, these characters being the more minor characters, I don't feel like it's done the same way as when the major players get introduced into the story that they build. And since these are more along the lines of thematic ideas for these characters, I think Starburners fits pretty well, especially considering what we get much later on. She is kind of a hokey character. She is kind of, uh, kind of a you know, a Lando Calrissian to Han, to the Han Solo that shows up later. I mean, that's what it really let's, is. Let's not go too far with the Star Wars analogies. I made one, <laughs> but um... I get one. Okay. Uh, I, I, I agree and I don't agree. Certainly on the point of theme, uh, if you were leaving the, the, the music and the verses here aside, I think we do get some more interesting questions, not unlike we got in the very first track. Uh, okay, Rabbit goes, Even on a cloudy night, I know that my star burns bright. It's high above my weary woes. It burns. It burns. If I get by, if my star burns bright, shine for me and take me home. Gazing at the sky above, waiting for the band to call, I know I've found a star that'll save my soul. And the question throughout this entire track really does become a question of the soul. Will you save my soul? Red dwarves won't save your soul. I mean, it's a a curious little thing to to ask, especially from a robot. But after all, these are self-aware robots. They're discovering themselves in a way. It's... And also, there's a lot of innocence coming from all three of them, but particularly Rabbit. So, I, 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 I feel for the character in this regard. And, I don't know, I just feel like the music, maybe this, there's a mismatched arc here that I feel like the music should have been a little bit more reserved at this moment, and maybe in an earlier track they should have maybe taken the hokey route or, or delivered something more theatrical for another subject. It just seemed like an odd disparity. That said, I do admit the chorus was pretty phenomenal still on the vocal harmonies. I mean, but also, and I made this point earlier, the the idea of the hokiness of the chorus might play into the tail end of the track a little more because at the end of the track there's a dialogue where they realize they're singing about souls and there's a dialogue about if they have souls and that they're robots and even well yeah I don't want to I don't want to mislead even some of the lyrics that I read were a dialogue between um, between rabbit and spine uh, spine says starburner you need to cut it out you're burning up the galaxy starburner red dwarves won't save your soul what you need is binary and then rabbit cuts in then will you save my soul spine oh no rabbit will you save my soul it's just this it's this odd existential conversation and so my only point is that that hokiness might play into more because once we get the real talk at the end and the, yeah. and even you know uh, the spine crying and then them calling him a dummy pretty much like it it I think all of that's meant to go together, so whether you like it or not, I think it still serves a purpose for the song, at least. Hatchworth actually brings that up. Says, did we even have souls, Spine? Well, that's what the song suggests. A little bit of meta conversation there. And Hatchworth goes, oh boy, because I guess he recognized how meta, how meta it was about to get. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's curious, and it's also it's, it's it, interesting. And like I said, Entertaining, if you, too. If you feel for the characters, then um, you will probably... Uh, 
not be so hard against the song itself um and you're just in it for the story then uh, for me i tend to go back and forth a lot of times I'm, I'm looking for music first so let's see what we get in track five because at this point the music really stood out to me in quite a big way the track progress and technology this is the first time yet on the podcast that this this began in a really 80s way and i was just flat out loving it yeah every step of the way it wasn't it wasn't I wasn't harping on the fact that, oh, it's reference material, it's satire. I think that's just it. It is, it is satire, and it's, it's knowledgeable satire, especially on that brand of 80s pop where they would get falsetto and throw in a little bit of attitude and also sound a little bit like they were on the brink of tears. Just the, the, the upbeat nature of this song is really a, the best side, I think, of 80s pop to me. It's the most unique shade of it. Well, it's also like they don't fit firmly in a genre. So like typically when we complain about too much 80s pop or or bands going 80s, it's because it's from a place where it tends to happen frequently. Whereas for Steam Power Giraffe, for the most part, they've done genre stuff from time to time. But more or less, they kind of mix mix it up a lot. So here it stood out a little more. And going back to my point earlier where it sounds like their music is progressing by the decades, this is not a callback. This is the future for their individual sound this is really okay now we've gone from the 50s 60s 70s and here's 80s here's the popular 80s here's something a little bit different but still very familiar well that's i don't think that was necessarily intentional because it's not like i would really describe too many things earlier on this album as like 50s 60s 70s i don't think that's the case i think they were actually very modern if any this is the most obvious uh retro throwback that i think i've seen so far um, with them, uh, the first times they've certainly pulled out uh, from the '80s, uh, but it reminded me of specific bands. I, that's, I think, the thing that really that really intrigues me. It seemed like certain vocalists were being referenced, and I wish I knew it offhand. I, I was asking Matt earlier whether he knew of anything, and it's just it it, it, it feels like that a more generalized sound. But I feel it was really achieved by some specific band that neither of us could think of. Yeah, no, it wouldn't really come to me. I did mention though a previous track of theirs, Roller Skate King, which felt very '70s pop, almost even '80s pop, and it had that kind of feel of being in a roller skate rink and felt very of the kind of genre and feel. Okay, and, so they have done it before right. on other albums. And in this case, though, they do play around with it. Each little change goes back to the chorus at the end of the day, but the verses do f- have different feels to them as you go along. And it's sort of, it's not just a pop song from the 80s, it's like every pop song from the 80s at points. They're trying out but different ideas. But it's like ideas. if you roll them all into exactly. one awesome ball of 80s pop, because it is hard not to even throw in the shoulders on this track, you know, and just start rocking back and forth to it. You need Actually, to, yeah, we you need to get into it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's the chorus. If there that were a fly on the wall in the car, <laughs> it's the chorus that anchors the whole, the whole, the whole sound together. It's just way too upbeat, way too enticing not to get into it. As the verses go along, it does take it down a notch. But I like the fact that it keeps going back to that high energy, real kind of almost anthemic style. It's also it's kind of like a love letter to technology with just a slight bit of a foreboding air. You, after all, the lyrics go, we're in love with progress and technology. And it's the accents that, like I said, really get the, your shoulders into it. We're in love with progress and, and technology. technology. It's, yeah. it's really awesome. And uh, I hope this love will never end. So it's, it's kind of, they're immersed in, in the and I guess the the universe of it, of course, they have a vested interest in robots. But then again, it also seems to have this little foreboding air, like it has also maybe caused more more problems than good. I don't know. Well, it it also feels to be almost like as if it were a 
spiritual successor to Mecto Amor from Mark III, yeah. which starts with a soliloquy about technology from Rabbit and then is all about the love of technology and its abundance. And so I think that this is definitely in the same vein as that. And I think approaching that kind of almost meta nature in song is something they do very well. I also really enjoy that this track ramps up as it continues, you know, and even when we get to the breakdown, the vocals speed up. Oh yeah, that was like a, vo a vocal bridge with this really fast paced, I think they entered like a like a triple meter thing, like mm -hmm. a double time. It was it was pretty amazing and it's it it also sounds very mechanical in the process of it. Well, it that, sounds I mean, that's part of the joke after all. Right. And it, I think the rolling drums that came in there too where the drums were kind of like almost a beat mark before then started speeding up with it gave it that kind of industry feel. It's funny it was, because I say that this is a love letter to technology, but at the same time I feel almost that was the whole deal with 80s pop was that their pop music was a love letter to technology. It's when it became ubiquitous whereas the 70s things were were becoming more and more technical things were things were getting refined the synthesizer was growing and then suddenly in 80s pop it, it if if you didn't have a synth in your pop song then well you were just a square <laughs> unless you were in the punk field then you were in a whole separate ballpark the electric line the electric guitar line that plays in and out and in and out and just shows up in very brief moments is another one of those little elements here that just i fell in love with you don't hear it all the time but it's it's a beautiful little bit of punctuation sort of showing that progress in technology in in the music itself because it's gets it's that little extra little bit of flair that updates the sound that updates it just enough to make sure that you know this isn't a 1980s pop music it still has its groundings in something that stylistically does have its roots in modern day music um Nah, I'm gonna disagree with you on that one. This was straight up '80s satire, like through and through. Um, yeah, I think I, they I'm knew it. To agree they, with Steve. They you know what it might be? It. it might be just the fact that the '80s are showing up too much nowadays. <laughs> Maybe I'm, hearing, I'm not I, having I might, this conversation that. again after <laughs> last week and so anyway. many other conversations. Um, although last week was different. They they were the modern approach. Mm. This is satire. Uh, track six, wink the satellite, and wink of course is an acronym um, for what I don't know. No, I'm not too sure either. It's something I didn't actually find on the various fan sites and everything like that. But Wink the Satellite, something I referred to earlier, Steam Junk. This is now actually Hatchworth talking with Wink. Yeah, this is a very narrative track. Um, it starts out ballady again. We've got some soft guitar, and it's almost dreamlike. Like at first, Hatchworth is describing Wink almost as if he dreamed about Wink, and it wasn't sure if it was real, and then had to explain and then talk about the dialogue. And it feels very kind of um, illusion and dreamlike. It's the focus on the bass. Uh, especially letting the bass be the most grounded element of the whole thing, the through line, and in some ways accenting Hatchworth's vocal work. Um, it's a good counterpoint to his breathier, almost falsetto style that he just seems to have in his natural range. It, it actually, I thought, lived up to maybe what uh, what track four, Starburner, quite really didn't live up to. This was an acoustic track that I think honored the whole idea of acoustic of an acoustic track and its placement through and through. Um, the whole concept of there's a world out there, there's a world out there, it's, it's again very optimistic. Um, but there's other things that, that keep this they keep this going despite the fact that it is so relaxed and it is so thin, like the upright bass in the background. I thought that was just a wonderful little touch, a wonderful piece of instrumentation that actually propels this song along despite the fact that it is so 
thin compared to almost every other track uh, we've had up to this point. We haven't had many tracks, but even most tracks on this album, this is so reserved. It's it's Wink the Satellite and his his uh, his own little drifting in the in the in the depths of space. It's it's his it's his story. Well, yeah, it's his story by introduction from Hatchworth, and what I think is the strength of this song also is where. Um, Starburner felt kind of innocent in the sense of childish almost. This is more of a childish wonderment from the perspective of Hatchworth, who is very young. In the previous record, they just unboxed him, so he's the youngest of the band Mm -hmm. members. And so everything's still kind of new, so he's got this wide-eyed innocence, which translates really well here, makes the song very immersive. So when we shift the narrative to Wink, the satellite singing to us, it We're is, no, on no, no. board. Satellite's not singing. The satellite is reporting. And reporting, that's what's so yeah. endearing about it. The the phrasing and the actual punctuation works within the meter, but only the way a true robot could work within the meter. Well, it's neat how the band invites this this uh, this universe of, of rampant AI where there are different levels of AI, where there are... There is a more refined, like you get to the, the the feeling certainly at this point that the band members themselves are a little bit more in the know, although except perhaps Hatchworth, who's still a little bit fresh to this. Um, they pretty much are like us; they just have a new perspective on them, a different perspective on the matter. And then there are other levels of AI that are just a little bit more uh, wide-eyed, optimistic, but also very, very innocent, easy to uh, easy to lie to, easy to, to misinterpret things about the universe, and that's that it, it is reflected in their vocals specifically, so that's why Wink sounds so stuttered, and, and it, he is, of course, reporting almost as if he had no AI at all, as if he was just, well, a robot with his programming, and he's designed to do what he does. But then these little snippets of desires sneak out within this, but you still hear it through this stuttered lens. It's, it's interesting. My name is Wink the Satellite, Mission aborted, coming home from endless nights. Wink 109, our mission was a failure and we're running out of time. Sent to the vice quadrant to find us a new home, but unlike other satellites, I fear being alone. When I saw her green visage, it was love at first sight, but then the space giant appeared and took the first bite. Alright, fanciful? Yes, we got that. Space giants biting planets, I guess. But at the same time, they're already adapting a basic VI. I wouldn't even call it an AI, virtual intelligence. I love that line, but unlike other satellites, I fear being alone. And that's the a key satellite right satellite is, is as alone as it gets. It's designed to be, especially in the vacuum of space. Yeah, it, yeah. it's interesting when you have something that typically can't speak self-reflect. Yeah, exactly, and that's just, just why, like, why I like the, the universe that they created here. I do um, want to bring And it the back. music really does reflect this, I think, through to the end of the song. And, and in the same way, it also brings in other uh, bands that I, I feel like have been equally as fanciful, like Modest Mouse and things like that. I, I feel all of this later in this track. Yeah, I mean, even when we get towards the end of the track, they bring in this beautiful guitar work that we really haven't heard a lot of yet on this album, for sure, that just kind of, it shows that the spine knows what he's doing with the guitar as well as singing, and it, it's really a great way that they wrap up the track before the final chorus and the final singing of or reporting of Wink, as it were. It really pulls the track together, especially from an instrumental point of view. Absolutely, and then like at the very tail end, there was a, a chord shift that was almost Gregorian. I thought it was mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. It was just a, like a single chord really toward the very, very, very end, and it just sucks the air out of the song, makes it almost feel like... like uh, 
we're back to square one or something like that. Like that is the the only existence that Wink the Satellite has ever known and that most satellites have ever known. It was a very strange chord shift. Um, feels almost clinical. Let's go to track seven, Burning in the Stratosphere. So now here we're getting some narrative. And initially I thought it was of the robots leaving for space, but it's not. This is a independent character, the astronaut, and his initial flight to space. And this song, the way it starts is really quite beautiful. It's striking this sweet piano ballad here that, you know, along with some dialogue giving us the narrative, it, it, it really sets up a really delightful narrative piece that for the first time probably, uh, at least on this record, is not referring at all to the to Steam Power Giraffe and to somebody else. It's kind of uh, got a little bit of a space oddity kind of a feel to it. And this yes. actually will show up a few more times in the album as a whole. But here, this this space oddity gets turned into, I guess, a gospel lullaby. I mean, that uh, first thing that came to mind was that, that kind of gospel idea. And I think Steve latched onto that one. Oh, it was pretty interesting. It was, it was, it was specifically the chorus, the burning in the stratosphere, burning in the stratosphere. Waiting so long, I no longer care. I'm burning in the stratosphere. But it's the flow of this. It has kind of a gospel, like, A-A-B-A vibe. It actually reminded me of a very specific thing uh, right out of Old Brother, Where Art Thou? in the in the scene where, where the sirens come over and they, they, they try to seduce them. Go to sleep, you little baby. And it's, again, that A-A-B-A structure. It, it was just, it had the same kind of sing-songy quality to it. Of course, it's a song. Of course, it's not sing-songy. But the point is, it almost sounds like a lullaby. Um, burning in the stratosphere, burning in the stratosphere, waiting so long, I no longer care. It sounds like a work song or something like yeah. that. Well, and considering the content that it's about an astronaut leaving for space, I mean, that is a work song. I mean, yeah, you that's your job as an astronaut. Um, you know, and I just, I think it's interesting that the Steam Power Giraffe, and we'll see more of this as the album goes, is pulling the narrative has multiple main characters and that steam power giraffe are kind of the through line for a story bigger than themselves whereas in previous records they would duck out and become others or sing about others but it would still be them singing about it like rex marksley and and the suspender man like these are all characters that they sing about or they embody but it's only for a brief moment whereas here we're really going to dive into a narrative that's really not about them yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. At the same time, I I, I do feel some little uh, musical things are coming back that maybe I'm left wanting. Uh, I like the piano ballad and I like the overall feel of this track. There was maybe just like two chords at first, and and we kind of bring that around to four after about a minute. I I just felt maybe this was just a slight bit thin. It should have maybe I don't know. I I guess the expectations for this album with the Vice Quadrant are really what I'm playing around with at this point. The idea that maybe we expected it to be so much grander than it really is and at this point the story really is more about i think the coldness of space and the the sense of feeling alone and it's through that lens that we get this tale the vice quadrant i think is 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 a very negative thing it's not necessarily a foreboding thing at least not till deep deep in this album well if you're talking about the coldness of space firefighters is the the exact opposite but yet the same thing this is a story about an astronaut burning to death so or the astronaut it's hard to really tell who these characters are that's a natural are. force it's not like there's some great intimidating figure quite yet no but that's going to show up very very soon I mean we had hints of an intimidating figure in even the intro track but yes track 8 fire fire which is the following track is I, I'm inclined to say the same astronaut who was singing in the last track but about something going wrong with his 
his going into space. Something happened. And this is when the theatricality really starts, which is something that Steam Power Giraffe is known for. We really, really feel the drama in this song. Hope I can make it. Stop it and break it. The doors are all locked down. I'm flying on my feet. Gotta reach that corridor. Sirens are blaring. Screams from the stairin as they watch him cry. Uh, oof, this is getting kind of... <laughs> yeah. He's holding on as he's ripped from the room, engulfed in flames, but they'll be out soon. Oh, it's such a shame of all the things to go wrong while out in space. And to chorus, fire, fire burns much brighter when oxygen is the supplier. Fire, fire is killing his desire to not be cold as he expires. That's great writing. That's quite, quite great writing. Um, I, I guess, to be honest, this is when I really began preferring this side of their their version of a space opera. And I realized it became really more about the emotions than about, I guess, the tale. It's just this disparate array of of um, the emotions of certain characters as they experience the coldness and the unforgiving nature of space. That said, there is an oddity about this song in particular in that it was performed and written years ago. This was something that has been online since the Two Cent show. Yeah, this was the inspiration for the album, am I correct? Uh, no, I don't know. I it could think have it was, and some people have, yeah. have talked about it that way, but it's it seems like it's one of the... It may have been the inspiration for doing a space opera. Okay. That said, here... It feels like really old school steam power. It seems like the first and second album. Yeah, well, for, right. for me, this song reflects one of my favorite songs, which is Automatonic Electronic Harmonics, which A, features my favorite singer in the band's um, The Spine, but it, it had the drama that that song had, and that's why I feel this is, this spiritually is very similar because it does, Firefire does have that drama. Especially the word fire. When they all come in on the harmonies, mm -hmm. I love that word. I love the way they sing it together. Fire. It's just overreaching. I, I I did quite like that. There are some things musically again that I'm I'm a little bit hesitant on. I liked this. I think I liked this more as like a contempo pop rock track than anything else. Um, I, I guess that's the only issue I'm having at this point is I I really love the theme that they're building at the moment. I kind of just wish it was a little more. Uh, pronounced with the music, which means, after all, that this should have been a much more downplayed uh, album than perhaps it was, or perhaps the way it started out as, that maybe I, I would have enjoyed more of a an atmospheric approach every step of the way, or find different ways to do that. But here's the thing, amidst the words, which which are, are chilling to read, uh, the the song itself really does seem like the kind of thing that would just like pop up on the radio. Um, maybe that's what they're going for. They're trying yeah. to, of course, appeal to all sides. And if you you find a theme interesting while you are just driving your way to work and this popped up on the radio, then even though I'm not sure if this is a radio, do they have radio play? I don't. I I mean, imagine maybe somewhere, me. but I don't think so. I mean, also I'm the last person asks. I don't really listen to the radio, but also I mean, well, as I, I said in the uh, in the beginning, you shouldn't judge the band based on the fact that they are more theatrically involved you know they can do it all but you know that said having a song that seems more approachable approachable and more single quality is not a bad thing it, it will bring people in who maybe didn't listen to previous stuff and this song was featured online like john said for a while as more or less a single with a live video performance put to it on youtube when the low register comes in at the at verse two it, it really starts shifting the song though what it starts off with and what it ends at are really at the end of the day, very different because of the amount of energy that gets put into it. All right, it. I'll agree with that, and especially uh, considering this is, it's, it may be a lighter track overall, but it does have quite 
a bit of substance behind it. The like, cello that comes in. Absolutely. The, the piano. I love the all the And even the, the tone of the piano. This is what I meant by it sounding kind of thin. Like, the tone of the piano sounds almost like it's a little cheap, like a, like an electric keyboard sound you'd find in just some, you know, rudimentary setting. But it does make it a little bit wholesome in a way, which is why I think this passes off as what I'd call really good contempo pop rock. Um, but yeah, unlike some of their more theatrical songs, maybe this could be taken seriously in an environment that is not immersed in the steampunk world. Not to imply that previous albums or previous songs can't be taken seriously by them, but it's just, again, perspective and marketing is, is a big thing. Well, narratively, also, this song feels very Pixar-ish in the fact that yeah. even though it's addressing something very sad and very horrible, it's doing it in a way that's approachable, like, say, referencing the opening scenes to Up, the movie, which I don't want to talk about anymore, I'll start crying. <laughs> it, it gives this, you know, drama, but in a way that, you know, you a feel kid can understand. Right, you feel sad, but it's not going to ruin anybody's day, it's just something sad to reflect on. Well, now let's go to something completely different. Very different. So, track nine is Sky Sharks featuring Professor Elemental. Um, Sky Sharks. So, we go back to the space opera feel, but we're back on planet Earth, and we've got this weird, like, phantom tech rock intro instrumental that... With a voiceover. With um, a voiceover. London is being invaded by Sky Sharks. Help us, steam-powered giraffe. Help us. They're almost at my house. Steve mentioned that this is the most steam-powered giraffe has ever sounded like Muse. It's got that Muse epic narrative feel. Well, it's the rock riff that starts building in the background, again with the whole chromatic bass rising up. It's pretty cool stuff. Sometimes I wish they would embellish just a little bit more into it, uh, but they really do sound like Muse, and I think they pull it off in many ways, at least as good as Muse pulls it off, sometimes maybe even outdoing them. Yeah, um, this song, the only one that it, the only time they've ever gotten kind of close to the sound was on Ghost Grinder on the previous record, Mark Three. but even still, it wasn't as kind of over-the-top theatrical as this was. I will say this This um, is maybe more indicative of, of explaining what I had previously said, the mm -hmm. idea of what Vice Quadrant, maybe what I had expected from a space opera. If I had to pick a band to have done a space opera, I probably would have said Muse, and I probably would have expected this to go in that direction based on the, the big purple album cover and the giant VQ, which just yeah. seems so intense, and it's... It's, I feel like that's the aesthetic that Muse has usually sought after, so maybe that would be what they're going for. I don't know. I mean, also, though, the difference between Muse is, and this is Muse tends to stay fairly serious and, and self-aware. True. Whereas here, they're self-aware and kind of silly. Steve referenced it as a steampunk Sharknado almost. Which is not a bad descriptor, honestly. Maybe even when you come right down to it, it even what I was saying before about like being taken seriously, like, well, there's real music, and then there's steam-powered giraffe. It's, it's not quite that simple. And no. then when you really sit and think about it, if you are going to do a, a space opera, and if you are going to have your music sound like a certain thing, you could argue that really uh, steam-powered giraffe is really just being more self-aware than Muse is, quite yeah. frankly. I never really know what Muse is going for. It's just you get this vague symbol of a, of a, a grand space epic taking place, but... But what is it? <laughs> Here be, you know it's Sky Sharks. Be wary of the Sky Sharks. They want to numb on your blood. If you want to have a future, heed my warning or you'll lose it. And please avoid their dreaded eye ray. Run and hide and fight another day. Practice cardio. Increase your pace. Preserve your human race. They're not just flying sharks, all right? They're <laughs> flying sharks with freaking laser eyes. But how can you not listen to the song and picture Sharknado? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point. Especially because... I, I, two-thirds of the way through the track itself, they have an epiphany moment. They're like, hey, wait, wait. 
Wait, what else can we do? Well, okay, uh, wait, fire! Wait a second. Fire! Hey, Hatchworth, give me that stick. Professor, do you have a lighter? Oh, yes, I've got one right here. Thanks. Back! Back! And you hear the squeals, the very Wilhelmy style squeals of, of animals being fought off with a flaming torch. And then it's going on, and this part goes on and on, almost too much, because at the very end, they call up the queen, and Spine's like, yes, your majesty, fire. That's the solution. Fire. Like, the, the gag is that obviously that's the solution. I mean, why wouldn't it be? But I, I, I framed it as the bit goes on long enough, you're about to roll your eyes when it ends. So, you know, it's, it's the old Family Guy gag in the beginning when Family Guy was still fresh of letting a joke go on almost too long. I, I, I detected on one little uh, addendum to that arc where in the beginning I was kind of, I didn't even know really what the joke was. I didn't know they were going to go in that direction because we hadn't had a lot of sketch comedy yet really on this album. And then here they all of a sudden go full force. They're like, well, no, we're, we're being silly. No question questions asked um so in the beginning i was just like oh, this is a little a little odd and then all of a sudden i found the joke and i was laughing my ass off and then all of a sudden it, it did almost go too long but then it ended in i don't know it was a, it was unique but it is still more appropriate for a comedy album but maybe that's what they go for anyway i don't know uh, my only caveat with this track is it feels kind of out of the chronology like at this point we're talking about someone going off into space and and but yet they're still on earth and so i don't know i just feel like it kind of sets it apart well um, one thing to the comedy you gotta remember go spy and go was the longest poo joke we've ever gotten in music in my opinion that's true from the previous album which was he's going to have diarrhea a robot cannot have diarrhea and it was just making fun of the straight man here I, I'm expecting jokes like this to show up. It's it's kind of, it's kind of the shtick that I know in these albums. But something that's not part of the shtick is the inclusion of rap, hip hop style. Yeah, we got a featured. Uh, we get Professor Elemental. Got to talk about him. And it's it's a little bit weird. I don't know if I like it or not. I am leaning towards enjoying it because it does actually add to the the comedy story that's being built here. But it's it's sort of take it or leave it for me within the framework of the song itself. I feel like with Professor Elemental, because that's his shtick, is he's a steampunk rapper um, who dresses like an, an old world explorer. It, it fits the gag of the song. I feel like whether you like it or not, well, I get that, you know, but for what it does for the song, it, I feel like it fits perfectly because he was the one doing the conversation bit in the beginning, so... It, it fits to the narrative. He's the structure. reason they call the Queen because he does have a, a British accent. It's there's, true. There's he that does. as well. I, I'm taking to leave it on the rap, but I'm about this song really for one moment. I'm pulling an old fashioned me here where I mm. isolate the moment, and that is really, I think, I think is is pretty much it for this for this track. It's it's really enjoyable altogether, and I like Muse as far as the aesthetic is concerned. But the the part where the vocals really are on par with Matt Bellamy and even sound very similar. But the fact that you have other uh, other vocalists, the fact that they're harmonizing, I think this is what really exceeds it in a way. And it's on the lines in the chorus, uh, as we're describing, I'll, I'll read a little before this. How can we hide? How can we survive? Flying cartilaginous genocide. Be wary of the sky sharks. They want to nom on your blood. If you want to have a future, heed my warning or you'll lose it. 
and please avoid their dreaded eye ray. This is the chorus here. Run and hide and fight another day. Practice cardio, increase your pace. But these lines, just to speak it, do not do them justice because it is all members together get, gather around and they form the, the basis of what seems to be this B flat minor uh, 11th chord down resolving to the ninth. This is coming from, from F minor, so we're, we're really on, on the fourth here. So it's our, our four eleven down to the 4-9, and it is so, so wrenchingly beautiful. It's all in the voice leading here, because it, they could take the easy route and just make the block chords, but these are expert vocalists, and this is the perfect example of what I was talking about in the very beginning of this album, the kind of thing that I go back personally to uh, Steam Powered Giraffe for, not just the fact that they are amazing vocalists, but it's the fact that they compose it like this, and they make these chilling moments, and their falsetto combined with it is just this, it, it's a it's a it's an aha moment for the track and for the album as a whole. I could re I could re-listen to these two measures and this chorus, uh, this whole chorus on repeat. Um, you, you could argue that this track kind of star wipes to earth when the previous tracks were to a different character going into space. Track ten, the following track, Daughter of Space, is again speaking to another character that's not steam powered giraffe. And what I really like about the start of this track is the kind of CB radio vocal intro. Um, other bands have done it in the past. One of my favorite was, uh, uh, though it had nothing to do with space, was a song called Busted by Matchbox 20. Starts with this kind of megaphone CB radio effect. And we get that here on a vocal intro that's with uh, the spine singing, but not as the spine, but as the astronaut we were referring to earlier. And it's it's it just sounds like this Thematically, the song is like a groovy space love song, but remember when I was alluding earlier about how we often are even fearful of some of the things we're passionate about that we love in science especially, and how you can love space but also be terrified if you were floating in it by yourself with no spaceship? That's the kind of idea this song conveys, and I think it's a really brilliant perspective on fear and love and science. In the life I led in my past, I tried to live by the Earth. The cosmos seems so far away, but I now know that place is among the stars. Back in time, the depths of space, there was a little girl born to the human race. She had fire in her eyes. She was brimming with hypercosmic ultra vibes. My squad had just deployed when she came of age and visited our world. She was a daughter of space, oh, a daughter of space. It really is, a, it, it's, it's a nice profile. Yeah. And it is the counterpoint to Fire Fire. Fire Fire was the observation of something cataclysmic happening. And then Sky Sharks show up, and we're going back to that original Fire Fire theme. This is the yeah. personal exploration of what was going on at this point. What's cool about Daughter of Space, it sets up two of my favorite characters in this album, and two, the two most important characters, because Daughter of Space becomes a reoccurring theme. A reincurring person, but who the person who's singing, the individual singing, as her laser hair cut through beams of steel, her claws of energy cracked my canopy, the sonic voice smashed my deflectors into pieces, the cabin depressurized, I hit my escape releases. She saves him. By the end of the story, she saves this person who was about to die, the astronaut, and takes her away with him. But and I alluded to this multiple times already, she's from the Vice Quadrant. She's from over there. We talked about the little hints of foreboding and, and ominousness and, and fear and danger that have been 
in all the references to the Vice Quadrant, all the references to outer space. Mm-hmm. When they end the track, I've been taken by the daughter of space. I may never see Earth again. The way it's done, it goes through several like classic fade-outs before this line is uttered. And then it's actually, once again, that radio transmission. I love how the first the track bookends with that radio transmission. But it seems like that last broadcast, last cry for help in many ways. Well, yeah, like I had said earlier, the song kind of feels like a love song at first, especially with the heartbeat drum, you know, this ode to space. But then that last line reading through that CB radio effect gives this sad outro that's so much more hollow and empty the way it's delivered because there's no music. It's all cut out. It's just the CB radio line delivered, that last line that John just said. And it just adds this power to it that I love when Steam Power Draft can do this because it invokes a response that not every one of their songs does, but when they do it right, they do it really right. Um, all right, let's go to track 11, Star Valley Night. Um, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, that was a good reaction. Like, So it starts. this song starts with like a, a, almost like country folk jaunt, and it just threw me for a loop a little bit. Like, well, it, it just felt out of place considering the heavy-soaked drama track we just came from. Well, let's reiterate that final line of the previous track again. I've been taken by the daughter of space. I may never see Earth again. And now and it's... Then everything's just sudden, sunny and bright. We're, we're in C major here. We've gone from, I think... Uh, C-sharp minor, I think, to C major. I think C-sharp minor was what the last uh, track was in. But here it's just all very very bright and happy. The, the bass is nice. But it, here's the thing that actually got me most. As much as I've really lauded the, the vocals and the lyrics on, on this album so far, this track, and maybe this was the intent, we'll get into that, but here it really sounded pretty disjointed. Um, Star Valley Nights. Me and my girl went down to the fields to see what we could see. 1,000 degrees it was in my mind. It was sunny and bright, sunny and bright, sunny and bright. Um, we couldn't find any shade for several miles around us. I cried out for rain and just one tall glass of lemonade. I'm bored by the story. I'm bored by the tale. And, and worse, it is the delivery of these lyrics sound very disjointed. It, do, it doesn't flow very well with the melody. Syllables are, are stressed in, in awkward moments considering the melody they wrote. And I believe, of course, again, this is written for the sake of the robot character you of course expect he's going to be a little bit off there but musically it's not very appealing to play devil's advocate to this conversation i just started that steve is continuing though i feel like the reason it's doing that is we were in space where one narrative is happening and now we've crashed back down to earth with steam powered giraffe they defeated the sharks and they they defeated the sharks and they they always speak from a place of innocence and wonderment as a whole even if specific characters don't but the place of wonderment doesn't necessarily equate to to Syllables being awkward. No, no, no. But but the thing here is that I'm saying, at least from a song structure point of view, even if the actual lyrics themselves are failing to deliver what we're looking for, is at least on an overall narrative arc of this song, it's this idea of now they're singing about looking to the stars and they would love to go to space and they wonder what it would like. And while, yes, I agree with what you're talking about, the lyrical delivery, it does help hammer home almost like a blunt force trauma, the childish wonderment. It just does seem a bit of an odd delivery. All right, let me rephrase this, because, of course, now that I think about it, yes, there are many, many times throughout their entire discography in which, yes, they have most certainly used that awkward, stressed syllable in order to deliver in what I found usually a, com- a comedic moment. It's, 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 it'll usually come from the spine, and you'll hear him throw something off just a little bit and say a word, the, a way in which we're not accustomed to hearing it, and it is very, very comedic. 
But I didn't get any comedy out of this track. I just felt a very stifled verse just trudging along, and, and the flow was just... It, it kind of robbed me of something that I should have felt in the aftermath of, of what uh, of Daughters of Space was this great song. The most compelling part of this track for me was the chorus. I'd kick down the sun for a Star Valley night. I said I'd kick down the sun for a Star Valley night. Star Valley night. I did like the actual inflection that was used the in this part. The imagery is nice The imagery too. is great. That, I, that is a beautiful little piece of imagery right there. Just And it fits within the mentality of the robots. It does fit within the mentality of the band itself and the characters and everything that's associated with them because it's the sort of thing that, A, works well within, like, Tall Tales, which has been a major component of their content, and, B, works within the sort of undefeatable optimism that they like to have when they're explaining the things that they're going to do. I get but, all that. I just feel like this message was was sifted through this this awkward filter. Yeah, yeah. The the verses really do weaken it overall. I'd say the biggest problem though overall is that the music is fairly repetitive and samey too. There's some nice bass work that's sprinkled throughout, which I mm-hmm. like. And we're always quick to talk about a nice bass. <laughs> uh, I just I I feel like. You know, I think the big problem here was not just the lyrics and the delivery, but the music as well. Just all together, it didn't come together to really engage as much as previous tracks have. Um, A problem that's not going to be foreign on moments of this record. From here, we can go to the next theatrical track, which we're going back now to characters outside of Steam Power Giraffe. And this is Commander Cosmo, who is another character who's throughout the record. And this starts with a very nice reprise of Starburner, which if you're gonna do any kind of musical, typically musical theater always does that. Like I've been talking to death about Hamilton and in very influential moments in the Hamilton uh, cast recording, they certain songs will refer- reference previous moments and previous songs, and they do that here. John mentioned earlier that we got a space oddity feel a little bit before. This is where it really hammers home. We get dialogue, and it really feels like an ode to David Bowie in parts, which is really nice and really beautiful, honestly. Well, it starts off almost like a distress call. It does seem like... Which is what space oddity has almost as well. There you go. And it seems like this is really the moment in which, I guess, things start getting real. You're sort of at the climax, it seems, at this point. So the music is, 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 uh, you know, it's kicking up a little bit. But I, I feel like... I don't know, it was just a little, once again, it was a little bit safe, but this time more in terms of rhythm. Uh, chord progression was also a little bit safe, but it was the rhythm, it was kind of just the the, 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 the drone in the background, the strumming in the background that, that really made this particular narrative drag a bit, because once again, I feel like, based on it being the climax, that I should have been involved here. This track, not that it was terribly long, it was about 5 minutes and 26 seconds, but boy did it feel like it was about twice that. I don't know, there's something just about the, the flow of, of the lyrics, the flow with the, uh, the the rhythm in the background that didn't change up very much. There was just something that felt like this was constrained and being stuck on a loop, and I wasn't able to immerse. That said, the story it tells is definitely along the lines of Space Oddity, but it's introducing our final major character, and that is Commander Cosmo. And it's weird to see, there seems to be so much link to the introduction of characters and to tragedy, because here, Commander Walter, AKA Commander Cosmo, is having his ship fall apart around him. Flight engineer Dwight, he saw the commander get hit with this explosion. This explosion, whatever it is, hit him, and seems to be intrinsically linked to 
the daughter in space into the astronaut. So it seems like there's this big culminating event, whether if it's caused by the daughter or if it's caused by something else, that is sort of like propagating, a tragic event just propagating through the second half of this first tra- uh, first disc. There's a very intriguing story here. Uh, it just, I, I feel like it is really best left to words than music at this point. I, I just get a, a, a very bare bones backdrop, uh, musically speaking, and I don't think it even necessarily complements nor detracts in one way or another from these words. I mean, when you read this, it reads like a short story. Uh, the story says he saved Dwight, filled his lungs with air, and he returned him through the atmosphere without a bruise or scrape or tear. Commander Cosmo saves the day, a hero overnight. He rocketed into outer space just by thinking about flight. There was no explanation how he did what he did. He unearthed special powers from his deep cosmic id. He could eat 30 moons and still eat 35 more, and his super space muscles were hard to ignore. Uh... Uh, let me amend short story, really rather nursery rhyme. I think actually the power of the, the power of this is, is in the wordplay alone, in the poetry alone. Attached to song, it's it's nothing particularly nothing particular is gained. Yeah, I think it leans too heavily on the lyrics and the story, which is not uncommon for musical theater either, which I was referencing earlier. It's it you know a lot of okay musicals have strong stories, but rely on the lyrics to convey the narrative and story at the expense of the music not really doing a ton because you want people to focus on the story being told. And I agree here it does feel a little dragged out as as differs from previous tracks. But I do like the way this story isn't just happy-go-lucky like so many of the other pieces they've done like Rex Marksley in particular. It ends in somewhat tragedy. I just can't bear to wade through the infinite decades seeing all those pretty smiles they'll burn they'll burn. Burning like a million suns, I know where I'm going to run, straight into the heart so far, deep within the darkest star. Commander Walter loved her, but the ring, it came too late. Decades flew by, but she would cherish him, no matter his final fate. The hero doesn't have happiness at the end of the day. He <laughs> he leaves. He, yeah. he undergoes his whole thing. It's... I can't think of the author who wrote it, but we're sort of like little glowflies, just an instance of, of life in context when you talk, start talking about something that is immortal and this character decades and decades watching them all burn I mean he's immortal he's going to live forever so it's kind of an interesting character that I just don't think they get across very well yeah I just yeah. I think that, that for once I don't think music music was the best vessel for this or if not it required so much more yeah. it required a much deeper uh, uh, focus on the musical narrative arc that is to say the the structure of the song use you know create an interesting progression use your your a b c section you know this is where i wanted to see a prog track for this and this is where prog excels where prog rock in many ways uh does this through music alone without even the need for uh for lyrics so it's interesting to, to be on the opposite side for once um from here we move to the final two tracks which are paired together pretty closely which is track 13 where is everyone in track 14, GG the Draft. Track 13 is for the first time pretty much in most of the Steam Power Draft's discography, we get a full-blown sketch with not really much music at all um, that introduces GG the Draft, who's been featured in videos and in live performances. Her arriving to, I guess, wherever Steam Power Draft is located and uh, commenting on how no one's around and, and wondering where everyone is until um, Engineer Steve comes in and they have a dialogue. I... 
I didn't care about this. I was not really invested from the beginning. It's the second full-blown sketch that we've had, I guess, although certainly the first that, I guess, encompassed an entire track. Uh, it's not that I'm down on, on that alone, because that is indicative of, again, the theater element sure. of this. But I, I, I thought this was a little bit out of place story-wise. Story I, I thought this was... Is I'm, it really all that intertwined? Is this all that important to the other characters and the really heart-wrenching moments we've had? Or is this just their idea of comedic relief? I mean, it's that. It's not intertwined in the fact that it affects the other stories, but it's a result of the other stories. The fact that they're gone, the fact that Steam Power Giraffe is not here, that they went off to do whatever they're doing, and she's left alone, is what this is meant to comment on. And this, paired with the song Gigi Giraffe, Gigi the Giraffe, which is a self-explanatory song from Gigi's perspective about Gigi, self-aggrandized, it just feels like the inserted obnoxious character to give dynamics to the characters you like. And I just, I wasn't invested in this character enough, nor did I enjoy the music or the sketch that was previous to it. My issue is just if, if you are going for comic relief, I I just didn't find it very funny. And I think in this case, I think that's a, that's important because clearly that was what was foremost on their minds. Otherwise, I don't see the, the real musical value of this track uh, going to, to 14 GG the Giraffe. It was just a crappy conclusion. This is the end of, of disc one. Um, and it's just, it's all just chord by chord. We trudge along, you know, again, just kind of rattling back and forth, even though the whole horn comping in the background really didn't add much. And I guess just the fact that I, I I really didn't enjoy the character either. Maybe that's the point. Maybe of course that is the point because you you made the analogy earlier to various other cartoons in which you'd have an obnoxious figure like Angelica from Rugrats, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, all right, I see that. I'm not supposed to sit here and enjoy this, but at least give me a bigger production. I think it's it's if you are going to have that kind of character, let's say in a Disney movie, then the production at least needs to be at least as endearing or as memorable as let's say when Gaston sings his famous song, you know, near to the beginning of the film. You know, he's the villain. You're not supposed to like him, but damn, that song is catchy. Or I think a, even a better little thing, in my opinion, would be Mo from Wally. He's oh, that sure. little cleanie bot. He just keeps showing up, showing up. That's what Gigi does in something that really is endearing. He keeps, he keeps, she keeps showing up. Yeah, she keeps just being a little bit here, a little bit there. She's on stage nowadays. No, I wasn't equating Gigi the giraffe directly to guest star. No, no, this just, one I would she's just Mo. the semblance of of how you're supposed to feel about a character because you listen to to some of these lyrics, specifically the chorus. Well, I'm Gigi the giraffe, and everybody loves me. Everybody loves loves me. Me, 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 me. Um, and then the answer to that, she's Gigi the giraffe, and everybody loves her. Everybody loves her, and it's all just a joke. It's all a farce. In the end, no one's there. No one is really there. It's in her head. Maybe there's a little bit of pity that you are certainly supposed to feel at the end of this, but the musical journey was just, uh, it's cringe-inducing at times. It was the first time I really was unhappy with something Steam Power did. I think at the end yeah. of the day, it was... There's never been a track I blatantly would skip, and this is probably, these two are probably the first. Yeah, it was, and that was kind of an eye-opener when we're getting to the end of this first disc. It was, honestly, I love the story thus far, 
but it seems like there's been, especially it's here, a perfect. ball was well, I, I have this is, I guess, a, a little a little intermission here for us to just provide some afterthoughts on on the first disc since we've never properly done a double disc before, except maybe Swans was that that was a double. double disc. Swans was a double disc, but, but I wanted only, to claw my eyes and earballs. Yeah, well, no, it's only because songs were half an hour long. It was also episode ninety six, and well, I'm trying to be a little more thorough about this, but the. The fact of the matter is, when I think of some of the the most memorable double discs that that I've listened to, and there really haven't been many, because most artists don't really choose to take that route. I I know of one pillar one, and it's the most obvious example, and that is The Wall, Pink Floyd's The Wall. When I was uh, really young, my dad had that CD. He'd probably had it since, like, 1990 or something like that. It was an older older CD for CDs, uh, but I listened to that thing endlessly. And what I really liked it, even from a young age, was the fact that it, it each disc you could kind of take individually. Um, they began as more of an exposition, and they end they ended with a really really deep conclusion that that you you were left with a very chilling afterthought, something atmospheric to kind of dwell on. Just let's say you didn't have enough time in your day to do both CDs, you could take one, and that would be it. Um, uh, Gigi the Giraffe really ruined this, this, the wrapping up of this first disc. Maybe it wasn't their intention, and they fully expect you to go right into the next disc, but at least as of this, uh, I feel like they had sucked a little bit of the substance that was really prevalent in the earlier portion, which we were indeed raving about. So on that note, uh, whereas this would normally be the time that we, uh, take our own personal break and just simply omit the edit, I think uh, this is a good time for just about any listener out there to take their break as well and maybe break up this podcast because um, we're going to be getting a lot of new material in disc two and uh, I think you need a cup of coffee. I certainly do. And welcome back to the review. I hope that's a good cup of coffee. From here, we're going to start with the first track and we're going to pull you right back in with The Pulls. Uh, and yeah, I can do bad puns too. Okay. So this He's is the learning. first track of disc two. Or track 15 and I'm going to be doing that kind of numbering because I'm not going to keep track. All right. Well, that's that's good actually because then we have both sets of numbering since if people bought it on Bandcamp, it is numbered all together. Anyway, um, this song I describe as the song form of weightlessness, at least when it starts. It just, it feels very like you're floating and what's also interesting is from the moment the lyrics come in it's Hatchworth singing but in a lower register something very different from what we're used to getting from Hatchworth which I instantly engaged me it's unemphatic and that's yeah. one thing that he really seems to always have it's he's singing more like when he talks during the skits and in, in the oh no we got earlier now he's actually using it and projecting it as a song voice as opposed to a talking voice when you take this and couple with the very carnival style of the music, it's it's sultry, amazingly sultry for his vocal work. Yeah, and and even even commenting on what Matt said about just it generally being uh, atmospheric, it, it is where I will certainly say that in whatever manner that I was perhaps disappointed with the conclusion of of disc one, I do think that this began with a true exposition. This really was, this could have been the beginning of, of the album, for instance. Uh, I had actually snuck a peek at this track a little bit earlier on. I think this is a track that they do provide within the limited uh, Bandcamp release, I believe, and, and it is really quite the nice track. Um, first of all, just focusing on the concept of gravity. Well, they do. Gravity, it makes no sense to me, but it pulls me, just like you do. The higher I am, the harder into ground I will slam. It will kill me. It'll be messy. 
Here I am, planted on the ground and waiting, waiting for it to pull me. If my logic isn't sound, what's keeping our feet on the ground? An equation or special occasion? Don't get me wrong, I'd rather be up in the clouds, but I'd worry about coming down. Now, forgetting about the fact that, from a strictly scientific point of view, gravity is probably one of the most mysterious things. It did not end with Newton. Newton determined that it does exist, and the manner in which it works, but not why it works. And that is still, like, on the cutting edge of what physics is trying to answer, which is why I just love that from a scientific, from a physical question, a physics question, they are actually addressing this and equating it very symbolically to the idea that everyone uses gravity as a symbol for, you know, I'm attracted to you, you're pulling me towards you. It's, it's, it's really sweet. And then if that is... If, you're, if the physical element of what gravity is is mysterious, then, well, love is just about as equally mysterious. It's the perfect analogy. And, and well, I, I'm almost shocked to believe they did it first. It seems so simple. You know, why didn't someone else think of that? Well, it's, a, it's one little line for me. Is it wrong? Is it wrong to be pulled along by a song? Like, I, I just love that. And the dreamlike fugue state that everything has, that everything's doing as it's going on, it is... In a lot of ways, sort of like the the opposite of the f opening track of this album. The opening track was, it was hopeful, but it had a sort of like a dark undertone I, I love about it. But here, this is the opposite. It's very emotionless, but it's very beautiful in its emotionlessness. Oh, this line right here, if gravity is embrace and time the love we chase, well, my darling, you must be a star. That, that, it's beautiful. Now that, the logic does follow right along the lines of the analogy he created. And it is such a beautiful analogy at that. So, uh, yeah, I would say that certainly as of the beginning of disc two, I am most turned around. Um, I don't want to overlook, though, the instrumentation of this track either. Because oh, no, no. between the sweeping strings and then the, the beautiful piano that we get. And also the fact that it's in six. There's kind of a waltzy nature to this, like yeah. you're drifting in the midst of space. That perfect beat for this song was just there. And then even in the middle, like there's this interlude that feels almost like low-tone carnival music. And it just it adds a fancifulness it, to the track that, that it already had, but the music supports. It adds a kind of cosmic comedy, if that makes sense. The comedy of the fact that we still, to this day, don't really quite know what gravity is, mm -hmm. and everybody yeah. is Old trying to answer comedy. the question of what love is, and it's like the, the the carnival is like almost like the joke of life. This is the joke of existence, that we're just running around, buzzing around trying to answer these questions. It's, it's That's the, the little existential uh, environment that I feel like he's placed in this, um, all just with a track called The Pulls. It, it was really exactly what I, I want, personally, out of Steam Powered Giraffe. I was fully back on board as of this track. Um, and from there, we go into track two, Soliton. And what is a Soliton, John? A Soliton is, well, okay, really hard to explain because the scientific nature of it requires a lot of equations to really explain what a Soliton is. But in layman's terms, it's a wave, a moving wave that for some reason, all the opposing forces that should cause the wave to break apart don't. They work in unison. They they work within a very localized area, but sound, light, even actual physical water waves all can achieve this where it moves and it moves perfectly without any deterioration to the piece itself. Now that is a very unusual idea in physics because you're supposed to lose energy, you're supposed to lose cohesion as things propagate, but at the same time it's also a very unique and beautiful idea 
for just the title track of a song, let alone what the word represents in the song itself. Sounds symbolically symbolic to me for for uh, loyalty and and continuing the idea of an, a, applying an eternity and and an emotion. An infinite. Emotion that's to that's something. what I got right away. Yeah. An infinite. So this track starts with. To me, one of the more interesting intros on the record, it's got this weird kind of static and distortion, and it feels very, but but feels very musical in its kind of sound effecty nature. But it only lasts a few seconds, and it goes into the spine singing with some guitar, which I always love, but it's the first time I felt an intro was too fleeting. Like, I wanted more of this kind of tonal work that they were it doing. It did have an intriguing little sound art thing going. And um, I wanted more of it. I wanted them to expand on it, but they don't really, which is a bummer. It doesn't ruin the track by any means. It just, you know, it felt fleeting. I mean, from there, though, we do go into the spine and his beautifully dynamic voice and some guitar. It becomes an acoustic track after yep. that. And it was another fairly thin track, not unlike what I described on, on the first album, uh, on the first disc. But I, I liked it. I liked it a lot, really, because of the fact that this track seemed so focused. It was all about the breath marks here. The the space that they that they that they put between phrases was just so inviting. It it would it seemed like it would be some really sad late night driving music, but I feel like you'll feel a lot better for it having listened to this track. Um, There's and, even a part where it goes la 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 la. Yeah, you have a lot of the which little, is stuff. It's supposed to be really tacky, especially since it's the Smurfs lies, but it's not. It's not. It's so airy. Even the chorus. It's so is... soft. It's just beautiful to just go... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To really just hum along. Wishing your time away. But even the chorus is also very thin in itself. It's just basically saying Solaton over and over again. But it, it works. It, 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 it soars. It the way it yeah. says it. Yeah, and also I like that this song has a very slow build. Even though it starts as an acoustic track mostly, it does build a little bit. And also the drums are very different here. Typically in previous tracks that were a little slower, the drum represented more of a heavy heartbeat that was very apparent. Here, it's a lot softer. The drum is there and it's keeping rhythm and it's fairly steady but it's a lot softer it's not pounding it's just you know light taps to keep the song moving forward which i thought was very interesting absolutely this was also another track that i felt could exist both within the act and separate from the act uh, i would have loved to hear this on on any compilation on the radio or whatever it really uh, does give an air of emotionally of hopefulness almost especially the hopefulness way hopefulness with a maybe a twang of of misery like nothing is promised it's hopefulness but there's a past it's hopefulness with a past or well or it's seeing past it's all the imagery that's being used soliton i just explained what it was to you they even go into it Solitons keep on moving on. Waves of solitons pulsing out and on from where they started from. Yet they sustain their runs as solitons by moving on. And the whole, I'll keep you moving. I'll be the support for you. I'll be the driving force for you. There's so much imagery just going on right here. It's an, it's, it's an, unending energy. It's an, it's an unstoppable force. That's a, that's what it is at the end of the day. But, it can't keep going on and that's i think the misery that i honed in on if there is a little bit of foreshadowing in the background it's the idea that i don't think it is quite as promised as he makes it out to be it's it's a wonderful ideal the soldaton but i i don't think it really is 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 promised in any way shape or form but he he his his words are certainly promising and would be reassuring to anyone who was i guess feeling a little bit low we can take our time finding our way in this world well, can you really? No. No, you no, you can't. But I'd, be lo- I'd love to have been told that. Yeah. Well, and also the way the track ends, you know, to, to 
add to what you guys are both saying emotionally about how it has have the hint of sadness is the track does end on just vocals it's just the spines vocals no other music and so it get, you know whenever especially if you're talking about space and science if you add that hollowness of just vocals echoing in almost a vacuum though technically if it was a vacuum there'd be no sound so you couldn't hear vocals never mind that minor discrepancies it, it, it gives that hint of sadness because solitary vocals in, in especially the bass that that spine delivers does always hint at sadness. That's all right. They've uh, taken a page from the George Lucas book. This is uh, there's no sound. There is sound in space in their universe. Well, uh, technically, there are little machines that are in all the different X wings and stuff like that that make the noises so that you have combat awareness and everything like that. But they retconned it. That was their explanation. There are speakers in spaceships making explosions. <laughs> okay. Oh my God, Lucas, come on. <laughs> Track three, where I left you, or seventeen if you're counting like me. Here. We're getting, once again, Hatchworth. And you got to remember that the different musicians, the different vocalists are sort of indicative of who's speaking what. Solaton does harken to the astronaut daughter of space duo that's going on there. There's love being represented. Here, there's longing. There's something not... Making, I I got a lost together. I got a lost feel in this in this track for line. sure and obviously yeah we considering where I left you on the journey home I passed by the moon if I had a built-in camera phone I'd send a photo to you if you tell me where where I left you where he left you I'm just a robot in bloom charting a brand new tune I can't help but think of you lost in eternal gloom uh, if you tell me where I left you uh, okay we're we're kind of changing our tune here. Quite um, literally as well. Quite too. literally, and it's uh, oh, there is a strange cyclical pattern to this track that kind of did leave me on edge. It wasn't just a lost feeling. It, well, although it maybe did feel as if the character indeed was lost and was kind of going around in circles. So that's what the structure of the song does. I wasn't sure how I felt about that for a while. Music, it's an interesting concept. Musically, I struggled to specifically describe what it sounds like. We all did a little bit. It, it felt exotic. It felt almost like a tango, John said. But also... Like, it had elements of, especially in the later part of, of old school, uh, old country, quote-unquote, Italian styles that were very pervasive during the 30s French and even or Spanish, too. Like I get a sense yeah. of all that. I likened it to the Romance languages. This was the this romance is, this is a music. Medi Mediterranean air, perhaps. It um, just... It, 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 it gave that, that air of almost even searching, too. Like, you're looking for something, especially with the lyrics you said in the title, Where I Left You. Like, it just, it's an interesting mix, but like Steve, I don't know that I was on board hook, line, or sinker. One of the things that was most engaging was Hatchworth's vocal pacing. Mm -hmm. It's not just Where I Left You, it's Where I Left You. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just, he's still got that that punctuation in his voice that it feels mildly unnatural but in this case it feels like it's an emotional break and, and as opposed to just a translation of his quote-unquote AI he, it, it really does work so well as as the halting nature of trying to get your mind back in order and there is really only one hiccup to this cycle of continuously searching continuously searching there's only one hiccup here when when he continues, I'm running out of fuel, searching on them fumes. Or did I just imagine you to fend off the blues? I've searched everywhere, even under the moon. And then there's kind of the sensation of everything falling, falling away, melting away. And then 
he picks it up by saying, I'm not giving up on you, but if what they say is true, I'm going to give some time and space to find me, too. Quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and then we just get another cycle, and it goes back again, because, well, he's not giving up, so we get the cycle. That was just a curious little moment. Um, I think I'm more on board with the concept of this track than the actual experience of it. Uh, and the experience is, I guess, one of maybe confusion, but I like at least that they're playing around with higher-end concepts. After all, that is what I wished for at the end of the last disc. And we, you know, it's the most we're getting of it, especially for the next, considering the next few tracks. Um, you, moon, the moon was mentioned quite a few times in this track, and the next track is Over the Moon, which, when you think about someone being over the moon, it's it, that's high passion, high love, high affection, or just high caring. Um, so you, uh, at least by title alone, you think you're going to get something like that. Um, it, this, and you get something just like that. Sort of. No, so this is the, I, I disagree it, on it, that it, count. It's just... It, you think you will, but it doesn't. It doesn't lead to the setup. So the song sounds, at least in the start, it has a guitar mixed with you know three-person harmonies, like they do so well. But as a whole, the song kind of feels like an effect to the old Sonny and Cher songs, like you know '60s folk. Even if I had to really kind of narrow it down, it. it, it and feels... I heard that. In fact, the only the only manner in which I would say that it doesn't sound '60s folk at all is the the sort of. The, the background reverb that you usually find in in a lot of recordings from that era just is 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 absent. And who's to say whether that's what they were going for at all? It, it just means that I believe if you had that sort of strange reverb that you find uh, based on recordings being done, let's say in like the Ed Sullivan Theater or or just using the the, the tape recording technology of the time, you get this. It was a style just to provide a little bit more ambience in the background. Let's say in the background of like a, a Mamas and the Papas track, for instance. Um, this sounds like the core melody writing, the style of music sounds very much in that vein. It just doesn't have that. It's it's clearly using modern equipment, and you don't have any of that ambiance. You just it just sounds modern. Um, it's it's a swayworthy song that at its core feels kind of generic. But here's the thing: I think actually it may be the lack of that 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 is what makes it so not unique in a way. Like, I guess I enjoy 60s folk, and maybe part of it is for the reason that it had that different aesthetic with a little more vastness to it. You you get the sense of there being a stage in the background and someone is singing out in the open. Here everything sounds so close and, and condensed, like, yeah, it's a studio. I know it's a studio, and, and the song isn't interesting enough on its own. So, frankly, I was really disappointed, and this is why I, I, I initially disagreed with you so vehemently, John, is that when you're saying over the moon, no, I don't believe we got that to a T. I don't believe we got something that is indicative of that phrase, over the moon. It's about as, as big of a compliment as you can as you can give for someone, saying I'm over the moon for you. Well, that's, that's there's nothing else you wouldn't do for them. But the song is so listless. And I think that's no, no, no. I, I'm still going with my previous statement, and the reason for that is because you didn't quite give me the enough time to explain okay, myself. Okay, okay, okay. I it it's by the end of the track itself, content-wise, out of the love trench, over the heart wrench, put me on the bench. My love thirst is quenched. I'm over the moon. It does transform. Those first lines are dealt. Are, are, are dramatic. I'm over my head. I'm head over heels. And their presentation is very dramatic. The only tra uh, transformation that I, I recall in this song was a strange islandy reprise. I'm not going to talk about that yet. Uh, that, that was odd. <laughs> but the song, at the end of the day, this love being over the moon is kind of listless. It does have... 
the lack of gravity is is apparent. I, to, to go back to their own metaphors, the lack is apparent, and I think that was on purpose. You've got me oh. feeling over the moon. Uh, in this case, I'm looking at it more like you're so far away, I can't reach you. All right, yeah. By my, the end, I'm, by I'm the over end my of head, it. I'm head over heels. I'm healing to love. My love is over. Love is such a terrible thing to be. It's not. It's not wholly. It's not wholly invested, and I get that, but. I think the problem here is the, the, I have no complaints about the lyrics. My complaint is mostly in the sound and presentation. It just, I don't, it, it doesn't feel as heartfelt as other heartfelt songs. We know they're capable of making things sound listless with still feeling heartfelt. And, and the problem is we got the pulls in Soliton at the very beginning of this part of the album. Yeah. And now we're going into a couple of other songs that are very similar thematically that just aren't hitting the same levels. I will pull back. Yeah, yeah, you have a point there, especially regarding the lyrics here. It is it is obviously it it's over the moon is an ironic thing. It, yeah. it's, it's used ironically here and the music I do believe, yeah, is probably meant to um, encapsulate something that is a little more generic in that ballpark because of course if he's not totally behind it then why are you really going to go over the moon like really do it from a musical standpoint it's just once again that doesn't make it terribly enjoyable that just means oh <laughs> we have an artist being cheeky so let's go to track 5 it's cosmic also so, kind of in the same ballpark so maybe? this song is brighter than the previous track at least it, it, it feels its title but I don't know. It it feels very safe and hollow musically. Again, it, it lacks the steam-powered giraffe one-two punch I'm expecting. That energetic feel, like even in their slower songs, there's still an energy behind it. And I, I just don't feel that here. It just feels fairly empty to me. It was really hard to describe this style uh, initially. And uh, again, I kind of I had initially approached it with the same uh, with the same bias. The idea of what well. It's cosmic. All right, give me something cut. Prove it to me. <laughs> and it doesn't quite happen. It's very much in the same ballpark. I was just wasn't sold. I felt like I was watching like MTV or VH1 or something. It's just a single, just to buy the time. Don't tell me that it's cosmic. I know it's cosmic. Oh yeah. Illuminating light pours from our eyes and lights up the end of the day when we've burned the candle at both ends and we need somebody to pick us and carry us. Home is anywhere we reside in our minds and make us smile just by thinking of us is a pretty strong word and that's why we use it to include us in everything. And some of those pauses I put in there were on purpose because that's how that's how it's done. It's a little more freeform, a little more unusual because the phrases don't don't really match up to the pacing of a normal normal sounding sentence versus the pacing of music there's no completeness at the end of a lot of the phrases that they use mm. i like that that is a little bit intriguing and i'm really enjoying the imagery but it's so passive mer musically and the chorus really the chorus is very standalone compared to everything else it's, it, it seems to be the biggest weakness overall because it's just a and it's just that kind of just Sway, but are you are you picking up the same idea though as like in the last track that this is another case of being cheeky? No, maybe not really. I mean, I, honestly, the the lyrics seem more genuine here, so I was a little confused. I I don't think so. I think that this is just a insert track here moment. I think I, it was supposed to be sultry, and it maybe didn't really quite I, I hit wouldn't it for me. I wouldn't even say sultry though because the the lyrics don't really even connotate that. I feel like it just 
it just feels delivered, not passionately no, I'm given. Was, it's attempting to do sultry, especially towards the end when there's that whispering. I know, it's cosmic. That little bit right there, kind of tacked on, kind of... The, the I lover I, I, in think your that, ear. I think that maybe this is a case where, yeah, perhaps they actually intend, uh, they intend the delivery to speak of their being cheeky as opposed to the lyrics themselves, which I, I now admit in the previous track was fairly obvious. Um, but in this particular case, I think it really is in the delivery, the idea that, well, people say it's one of those throwaway words. It's just, just like I was criticizing the word epic earlier. I feel like maybe that's the idea here. It's cosmic. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, how cosmic could it be? You met in a bar. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, no, they met in outer space when yeah, okay. one person saved the other. Fair when enough. When one being, quote unquote, saved, saved the, the other, other from explosive decompression and dying alone in space and cold, cold depths of hell. Anyway, next track, Hold Me. This is how you pare down their music. This yeah. is this is great. This is this is the kind of structure we expect from Steam Power Giraffe when they hit us with something slow, sad, and contemplative and emotional. Well, and they definitely it. do this. I felt it this time. Absolutely. That's, that's the most important thing. It's all it's very pure. Just a lot of just piano and vocals. Um yeah, I gotta read the lyrics here. You told me you'd hold me. Hold me till the morning light. You craved me. You saved me. Saved me from my own foolish blight. You're gone now. I'm strong now. Strong enough to cry only at night. I see now it can't be now, now that you're away. Uh, oh, lots of, lots of, uh, pulling up from, from the depths here. The innards of, of the psyche is just kind of escaping. This is written, by the well, by the way, by, by Rabbit. Um, it also, this feels reminiscent of actually the stinger at the end of the last album with, you know, the little... I think it was a little girl. It was definitely a small child asking, When are you coming back? And where are you going? <laughs> and so this feels almost like a response to that moment, you know, of saying goodbye and, and and talking about having to leave someone you care about, whether it's romantic love or familial love or anything in between, you know? And, and it feels sincere. It feels sweet. And it really pulls me in. I'm engaged by this track. There's something about Rabbit's uh, voice that I feel like whenever... Whenever she says anything, it is always very much like, oh, I just want somebody to love. <laughs> and especially, you see it, of course, with the eyes of the robot, not necessarily the artist, although maybe the artist, I don't know. It's all, But that's the way the lyrics are conveyed, because you have this, this unblemished optimist. Um, there always is just that, like, well, it's right around the corner. How could you? Everything just seems so dire. Yeah. Everything. Um, through the lens of, of, of like, a, a prepubescent child. How, how could that happen? You can't even understand it. And while we start with just the piano accompanying her, and eventually strings come in, doing great work uh, accenting the narrative that's going on right here, accenting the emotional state, it remains an otherwise simple song, though what it does at the end where it becomes almost childishly piano just fits the persona so well for both the voice of Rabbit in this song as well as that kind of very, very innocent feel, the very... Naive, not naive. The very tender. Emotions yeah, tender, that are tender here. is the word that I'd use to, uh, pretty much to describe this track as a whole, as a as a whole. It's called "Hold Me." You gotta just feel. You gotta feel the feels on this one, I guess. Um, I, I guess to be honest, I was just a little confused about the the, the context. After all, I I feel like. Is this just all separate perspectives that we're getting? Well, because, I think we're going back a lot between 
the, I, I the know, different scenes. Like, yeah. I know this album is all over the place in terms of the characters that it looks at, but it's just like, on one hand, it seems to be a little bit... Uh, um, on one hand, I see betrayal. On the other hand, I see uh, I see cynicism. Other times, I see genuine sweetness. Really, I I I, I should I, I'm wrong really to attribute any kind of like uh, um, betrayal to this track. This track is I think you saved me. You saved me from myself. I think it's genuine. And I guess following the last two tracks that I was just left questioning, maybe more questioning from the music than from the lyrics themselves. I I. I'm just confused. The overall through line of the narrative seems a little looser and scattered in disc two versus disc one. More or less, disc one seemed pretty cohesive. Here, I do feel like we are missing some obvious pieces that you have to like look harder for. It's just the combination going back and forth between love songs professing love and love songs talking about the challenges that are associated with it, talking about lacking it. It feels like it really is just going back and forth through maybe some emotional progression of uh, the daughter of space, of the astronaut, and of the only other major character we've really seen would be uh, Commander Cosmic. Yeah. So going going back and forth, I can only say that Hold Me, Where I Left You, The Pulls is either directly speaking of Commander Cosmo and his love towards one of the other protagonists, or Commander Cosmo and some sort of lost love. Yeah. Well, you'd know better than us. <laughs> yeah, because of all the research, but I'm not going heavy-handed like a lot of Reddit did. From here we go to track seven, The Speed of Light, and um, we get that feeling vast again. It this This brings back the epic we were getting earlier and on the previous disc. Um, and, and we go back to them kind of taking their time with with the music instead of just kind of either going too slow, feeling empty, feeling hollow. Here we, we get something that feels more like Steam Powered Giraffe again. And it's the spine showing up big time. He really just goes, he goes all out at some parts, uh, really just emoting just beautifully. But when we start with this like it really is a, a, an epic drum beat, epic quote unquote. And I'm not. I can't say that. It's it's a beatbox. It's a beatbox, and it's uh, something. Uh, I don't know. No, I was going quote unquote epic. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Quotes. We're not. Are, are we're not talking Williams here. level or anything right. like that. Yeah. I mean, it is maybe something akin to the to the grandness of 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 what you almost expect an album called Vice Quadrant to build to. But eh, techno pop wasn't the first thing that really came to mind for me. I I don't know. I was. I was back and forth about it. Maybe I wanted a little bit more pep by this point because the these al- these tracks have kind of been just eh, kind of gliding along. I, I can only take so many sweet tracks or or be thrown back and forth with before I need something, something at least a little bit more substantial because it seems they've been taking the satirical route up until now, and that's not necessarily what I prefer. I'd rather them just write a, a, a genuine track from the hearts of Steam-Powered Giraffe, and I feel like they've been using too many... Too many disparate avenues, and I do agree that this sounded a little closer to what their sound is by perhaps kicking it up a notch. There were actually times where I thought this even reminded me a little bit of Dream Theater in the beginning, um, which was definitely a compliment. But then when I heard the beatbox, yeah, that doesn't quite fit their aesthetic, and I don't know if it really added anything. It was enjoyable, but only in a, in a cursory sense. Um, I, eh. I, I, no, I'll say I love the the sort of scatty 
scratch beat that they build into the song, it doesn't go all out with the electronica influences. It just remains there. It remains as a as as the primary focus because this track is all about the exploration of the astronaut and the daughter really like becoming one, sharing the power that the daughter has with the astronaut. And we still don't know what these kind of characters are, but since she's been more of a, a, a dangerous influence where you can only expect him to follow in suit, I guess. At the end of the day, this is even foreshadowed by the song itself when there's, it sort of gets ominous towards the end where it kind of ends on, on a downer. And, and this really just kind of cements the sort of sour nature that's associated with these two individuals as far as this album's concerned. It, it almost in, almost always they're going to have some sort of dramatic reverberation in, in anything that they do, usually towards the end of the track, usually right after something happy has been said. I mean, in this case, I'm not alone in the world anymore. Look out, Earth. Uh, Come on, dude. Like, that could be taken one way, and it's being taken the other way. It's being taken in the very dark route this time. Yeah, well, I'll buy that. (laughs) Let's go to the next track, track eight, Rav to the Rescue. So here we get another sketch. There's some music in it, but it's more or less a sketch. Quite apparent that we're uh, not thrilled about these. Um, It's good exposition for the story because we find out where... Well, at least this sketch is exposition for the story, unlike the previous one, Where Is Everyone? This, at least, yes, we're getting some background, we're getting some story pieces. Commander Cosmo was stuck in the Necrostar. Raz shows up. Raz was much earlier on Starburner, as it so happens. Uh, Shows up, blows up the star, then has to uh, deal with Jumbo the Space Whale. And Jumbo the Space Whale gets karate punched into oblivion by Commander Cosmo, who's a superhero, of course. And then um, it's a better than Superman kind of thing, but and then Rav asks his robot counterpart to give him some driving music or some cruising music, and then we get track nine. Well, we also get the first. Uh, we get the big bad who yeah. disturbs the sacred fortress. That's introduced. Well, it's the first time it's introduced, but Jumbo the giant space whale gets knocked out in the first round. So did the voice is there, but the big bad shows up I, at a couple different times. I will, okay. Okay. I will say I don't want to go through this whole thing being completely done. At least here, this this sketch is entertaining a little more than than the previous one was. But again, it does still least, feel like it interrupts the flow. Of it. I, I at least I guess respect the idea that they thought that there were certain elements of the plot that they couldn't or would be best served not to be in music. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to track nine then. Starlight, Starshine. Which is exactly what it's, it was said to be in the previous track. It's a cruising song. It feels very kind of old west folky strut, like you're galloping on a horse, but you're on a space horse in space, because space. Because space. Um, it actually reminded me more of newer Decemberists. Like, yes. uh, more of their fresh, more optimistic side, I guess. Mm-hmm. It was a very sweet track. Not... Not quite. I didn't prefer it quite as much as I did the the other track. The last album that I compared them to, Old Decemberists, um, but this was still enjoyable. Starlight, starshine, please come back into my life. You left me all alone. Can't you see that my heart's your home? There's a void in my soul, and it leaves me feeling cold. Will I ever find peace from its tolls? Starlight, starshine, all of my mind couldn't unwind. What it was, what it'll be, what future can I hope to see? Again, back to optimism. I appreciate it. Uh, It's heavy on the imagery here, but it's not the best imagery of the album, not by a long shot. 
been a while since I've heard something fresh musically. I just hear various different shades of things they've pr- done on this album, and that's a little bit of a downer for me. Yeah, this is... It, it does get some punchy piano as it goes along, and a legitimate beat as it goes along, but that's really just filling out what should have kind of been there from the beginning, and yeah. Yeah. they don't expand upon this. They don't really change the melody as you go along. I don't mean to sound dismissive, but it certainly... Maybe it sounded more like the sketch that we got in the previous track was setting up something a little bit bigger than this. It just seems that there's a lot of non-sequiturs, at least the musical experience... I hear non sequiturs. Maybe they're they're fully intended. I'm sure they are. Obviously, they released it and they were like, "Nope, this is good." I feel but like we're, I feel like we're hitting moments in this record where it would benefit from the imagery and the live feeling. I think it's designed to be performed, not necessarily just listened to, because it would give more context. Maybe at least. I, I actually thought you were going to take that in a different direction and suggest that maybe it's 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 time we consider that this uh, uh, didn't have to be a double disc i mean i'll save that for our wrap-up when we get towards the end i don't want to really get into that right now yeah um, no it's it's early yet and i'll try to give all these songs their due but certainly the 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 plot see just you can sort the of plot gauge seems to be way on our, the album or rather it's 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 thin when you look at the fact that there are 28 tracks yeah because that is so much time with which to spread out a story that i think is actually fairly condensed yeah. Um, so, all right, let's, let's trudge this along. Uh, track 10, The Space Giant. Here we get back to the adventure story style we're very familiar with, with um, Steam Power Giraffe. It's, you know, we get a dynamic, strong narrative from the get-go here, and it's about the space giant himself, um, referenced earlier in Wink the Satellite. And it's... I like the fact that they do the other perspective. That, uh-huh. that is definitely up there. I enjoy how reminiscent this is of Rex Marksley as well as far as storytelling tracks go. And I appreciate a return to form, so to speak. It it's also starts to link all the characters together. Rav, or at least from the point of view I believe is Rav, talks to the, the band, brings mm-hmm. them into the fold of this story. He uh, brings in Wink, which is now their, their satellite slash spaceship. And... He's telling, all oh, right, there's a there's a, a, a giant green apple in the sky that we have to go save from a space giant mm-hmm. for that, that that bit it earlier in the day. I mean, that happened. So now they're starting to bring all the people together. And Rav did bring in Commander Cosmo, so now he's a part of the intrinsic story of the it's band It's starting itself. to wrap it together yeah, a bit. They're yeah. bringing it all together, and but it's an oddball of a track. It's kind of war cowboy at the beginning. But very easily settles into yeah. something else. It's, it has kind of what I'd call that southern gothic feel a little bit, which is something I've attributed to several other tracks on this album, if, if maybe I haven't said it. But uh, maybe in a bigger way this time, for sure. The horns grow in the background. Maybe that's not something that's necessarily southern gothic, but they add that on top, which does make this track certainly seem bigger. It's clear that something is being fought off. That, that I think, is what makes this a, a more uh, true climax to, to the album, or at least to this disc. Um, it feels combative, like there's some kind of great battle happening. And John even mentioned earlier Tribute by Tenacious D and yeah, the guitar battle between Satan and Tenacious D, um, which Steve and I both quickly agreed about because we're all big Tenacious D fans. But it, it uh, this actually does cul- culminate in a battle between guitar duel. It's not the best guitar duel of all time. I was kind of fifty fifty on this. I I, I do yeah. want to stress that this 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 solo here, the, these dual solos, they were. They were interesting. I, I think that at this point, and this is not going to be the higher end of, of my anal- analytical self, but something was off, and I'm not exactly sure what it was. I think it may have been a, a sort of microscopic 
of answer to what I said before, the idea that maybe there are a few non-sequiturs that I was noticing on the album scale. I think I noticed that on this song, uh, based on the fact that it did have more sections and did have uh, a very, um, on the face of it, complex solo, which I think had a lot to it. You could definitely groove along with it, but I feel like there was just something about the logical flow of it that didn't make it seem necessarily climactic, except for like certain little phrases, certain little groups of the solo itself were like, all right, that that's great riff, keep going with that. And then it would kind of go back on itself. And I realized that maybe this was all just to symbolize the duel, the dueling nature of it, that you're going to be sparring. But I don't know, I don't think it was, again, the musical flow of it wasn't so fluid. That's about as close as I can get to it. I think it was simply a matter of context, the solo's placement within the song, and the overall flow of it. Could have served maybe to uh, emulate its own narrative arc. And the narrative arc was... I really enjoyed the vocals on this one because they were all over the place. A lot of characters show up and start talking, and each of them has their own inflection and everything like that. And then there's the exposition style. The duel ended very much almost like noir French movies would have done it but without the accent it's just very matter-of-factly telling what happened there but the robots come in they do their own little shtick there's a lot going on here and the broken up nature of the pacing of the exploration of these vocals I think directly contradicts how flowing that that solo was at mm. as the culminating piece that might be it at least in, in, in the cohesion factor. I Maybe it's just the fact that there are, yeah, there are two discs here. <laughs> and uh, that, that's what I got? I don't know. I, by comparison, maybe I was looking for something bigger. Again, owing to the title, The Vice Quadrant. It's a good solo. I just don't know if it's double disc solo. And, no, seriously, because there weren't very many other solos on this album. That's this very is true. the one. There so are very few other guitar it moments. It was quite set up. Guitar moments. Quite set up. Um, I will say, though, that the Space Giant is at least setting us into motion a high point again. This feels to have the energy that we expect from Steam Power Giraffe, which I'm excited about, and blends really well into the track that follows, Oh No, which I compared to as the montage song from Team America. It's just well, very high energy, you know, moves forward, gets the blood pumping. It's also referential. There's a lot yeah. of familiarity with the previous album, with the whole of the album. Having it together, I mean, it, it, it later on, at the very end of it, or not the very end, but towards the end, it goes back to Soliton, like, chord by chord, it word for word. It, yeah. There's and, a lot of referential material in here, and it's... It's sort of talking about the culmination of what's going on with mm-hmm. this whole conflict. Yeah. Now that with all the characters here, yeah, and the battle happening. Well, no, no. The in the previous track, the the band left with Wink. Back, oh, that's go back true. To Earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is that. But here, Commander Cosmo goes and sees that's going on, and well, he 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 sees that the astronaut is a bad influence on the daughter of space, and so he grabs the daughter of space and pulls her away and zooms off in the direction. Just, just sort of separating the two, the 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 yin and yang, bad feeding that was going on right there to prevent the destruction that was going on right there, because what sh- what happens is a man appeared outside the ship and he was pale as snow as the earth was blue. It couldn't be him. Hadn't he died long ago? Dressed in a tattered spacesuit, his helmet smashed, his eyes glowing so bright with the grip of his hands he tore through the hull, dooming the ship and every woman and man. Okay, conflict is going on. This is way dark. Oh, it's way, way dark. It's still not the darkest of the tracks, no. but it is really not 
good, right? Well, and also, but what I <laughs> no, like about... No, it's not that it's not good musically speaking. Well, you make your point for it. So, the thing that I really like to point out, though, is while we'd gotten some sticky sketches before, here the emotionality of the vocal delivery, like, this is... I, I actually... I'm feeling. I feel something here. It's it's definitely pulling at my heartstrings. You feel saddened. You feel concerned. You feel worried. You're not you the feel only, astonished. You're not the only person who feels something. He says, they hit me. I feel pain. It's it's it's. But that's after a couple of transitions. There's a lot going on there because remember, there's, a, there's that middle part that's a full space battle, and that's when everything starts getting re- referential afterwards. That's that's when you know the daughter is separated from the astronaut, and this space battle then becomes the astronaut going through the motions of talking about all this love, but there's always a twinge on it. I like how it becomes referential to the past love and. And makes it kind of cloudy, makes it not the best in the world. When previously, something like Solitan was just so hopeful, so full of just joy, except for that tiny little bit at the end that always happens. But here, it, it really is the tainted nature because his love leaves him. And it's not just his love, it's his life. Literally, he dies after this. Yeah. I, I, I do appreciate you also keeping on top of the uh, overall structure of this track. Certainly yeah. at effectively track 25, um, certain things are bound to uh, a little bit. Yeah. A little blurred. I hope you've uh, been with us this whole time. But uh, there was one other issue that I did have considering the, the lyrics that you read earlier uh, and considering many other lyrics here, just in how dark it gets and how... how uh, the, the, what, the reactions that you're supposed to have at this point, which certainly are indicative of... A story that is a little bit more for an adult audience, perhaps. It just does. It doesn't feel like, or as we referenced earlier. That's not to say this isn't. I, right. I was just saying, but we we do have a little bit of a conflict on this album, considering that yeah, at the end of the first disc, we were pretty sure we had been immersed into a kids show. I do not believe Gigi the gr- Giraffe really has a lot to offer an adult audience. Um, not. Not to me, at least not to this particular adult, and at least maybe, uh, presumably not to the two other adults present at the table. Even and if we do take into effect that the term adult is questionable at best oh, anyway. Oh, it is questionable at best, and certainly I, uh, <laughs> my, the things that I enjoy are not all indicative but, of but, me But no, but you make a good point, Steve. I feel like earlier I referenced that uh, the adult stuff that comes up feels very Pixar where it's adult but you know kids can understand it and it would impact the adults possibly more but the kids can grasp it here it does feel a lot darker like maybe more teenager to adult than little kid. I'm gonna use my Star Wars analogy one more time here and and be prepared because this is rather controversial Gigi the Giraffe is the Jar Jar Binks of this the album. Vice, it's not the Vice Quadrant. That's not controversial. That's, not that's, that's no. accurate and oh. appropriate, I believe. Lover, yeah. Lovers of, of Steam Power Giraffe out there. I don't May know. feel different. Start, start commenting. <laughs> but what this does, and what the next song, Necrostar, really do, does something that Disney has not been afraid of. And this is where I'm going to take a little bit of issue with your arguments. You're overlooking some things that Disney does in their children's story. Like Tarzan perfect example is Tarzan. The main villain hangs himself at the end. Oh, yeah. And you get that stark picture. No, I... There is darkness allowed in children's stories. At that point, you are talking about very, very subtle uh, manners of delivery and, and, and exposition. How you paint characters and what you expect them to do and what you're teaching children in the process. Um, and no, I, I, I absolutely agree that that children should not be talked down to in any way shape or form the 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 themes that are built up here 
I think are are certainly relevant, and I don't think I would in any way, shape, or form keep them from my child. I do believe uh, that the narrative flow before the, we actually get this is a little misleading. Yes, I yeah, would definitely I, I be think, on board with that. I yeah. think it really is a question right. of whether a child will understand the gravity of what is happening right now, given some of the previous tracks. If I have to sit here and really like follow these lyrics, you know, to, to try and pick up this story before this makes sense, I feel like a kid would have some trouble with it. To defend it, though, as devil's advocate, the kid may not care, though. The child might just be engaged in the music, the story, the emotion, and not really focus on the hard-coded truth that's there. And I would make this final argument as opposed to it. It's not a children's story. It's It's an adult's children's story. It's made for adults, but presented in a childlike manner. Right, we're doing dream stalks again. (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) Steam-powered giraffe has always had that kind of childlike association with their leanings, with their styles, with their music. But they always tackle really adult themes. Even their really happy-go-lucky stuff is adult. When you start talking about Mecto Amor, one of the songs are brought up, Honeybee is deep, is beautiful, but it's still very simplistic in so much of its phrasing and so much of its words. It's, in a lot of ways, talking to a child because they're not using five, six syllables at a time. Would you let me hold your hand? Words like that. Every time you smiled at me. Not really in death, but smiling. Absolutely. And, yeah, it may also be the perspective of the of the artists themselves, considering that, well... Maybe just as artists, they have certain little impulses that they want to that they want to give their due at that particular moment. It's like, well, on one hand, you want to just uh, you know uh, write this really, really deep and dark diary entry, and then maybe just go watch the Jungle Book. And you from know, here, we do the bare, get, the bare necessities. <laughs> we do get the really deep, dark diary entry in Necrostar. Track 12, which is the villain song. I mean, it sounds so much... This is the closest, I think, we really get to a Muse-esque sound. Because closest, it, it, but we've been building. Right, and it, it really adds the drama. We go back to the, the theatricality. This touches on dark, ominous notes that were even as early as the very first track of the first disc. And it kind of brings us a little bit full circle at this point. This is when the astronaut merges with the Necrostar, which was holding uh, Commander Cosmo, in, you know, entrapped. Which I guess now we have a villain merging with the only thing that can defeat the hero. This is really an odd idea, so late in the album that. But at the same time, it sort of is kind of indicative of a sequel or I mean, a prequel to a sequel, this the is, first of a series. This is definitely a movie moment, it feels like. Uh, you've got this kind of ultimate in evil that's here now, the boss battle, if you will. And, you know, I mean, for the way the album's going, it makes sense. I feel like Necrostar, Ono, oh and the previous, of course, the, you know, 10, 11, and 12 on the second disc could have been moved f- closer to the front end of the second disc and sure. gotten rid of a few other tracks. Yep. I think would have made the story more cohesive. But that said, I, I like Necrostar, if nothing else, because it does what it's exactly what it's supposed to. It's supposed to sound ominous and villainy and scary, and, and it does just that. And and what's more so is it really doesn't uh, doesn't pull the punches when it comes to that adult content. Frankly, a lot of these lyrics are, are disturbed. So this is pain? I feel it. I taste it. I crave it. I feel alive. In my core, I see red and a pulsing song that will wake the dead. Wolves, Saturn knew best, gnaw on the bone, consume your own, scream, howl like a banshee, 
Wail at the terror it devours you. It devours you whole. <laughs> Once well, again, uh, Gigi the giraffe. Uh, uh, yeah, the contrast is 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 stark. But I like I like this nonetheless. Oh, this is gorgeous. It even does a lot of the exposition we need to figure out where all the pieces start fitting together. Who do you think sent the sky shark a grams or gave the space giants SPGs awful jams? Commander Walter picked me personally to kill him too. And of course I obliged, or at least tried to. But not even my dark heart could beat or gore or swallow the red in his core. <laughs> like, it's, it's bringing it all together. This is, in one way, a villain exposition that you kind of expect in a really bad Bond movie. And in another way, it's also a, a exploration into something that Steam Power Draft never did before. You know, I will say, this is just a minor little throwback to a, a very old, old podcast that we did. Well, it's, it's, it's pretty old. Episode 105, Redeemer of Souls. By Judas Priest, oh, yeah. could have used these lyrics. Oh, for sure, <laughs> and they this, really this could because theme. this is this is like almost in the same like aesthetic. I feel yeah. they had the grandness they had. They had that 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 uh, classic rock, really hardcore metal metal background, and then the lyrics were just such so much of a joke. And there was no substance there. It just seemed like em- empty references. Here, at least, Steam Power Draft is building a very clear narrative. Well, and also like Necrostar, as far as being a culminating moment, like John was referencing adult material before. I have another childhood favorite uh, Disney movie that, as a kid, terrified me, and that's Roger Rabbit. At the end, when Judge Doom's eyes pop out and he's got the dagger eyes, the cartoon he really is, and the cackle. Like, it's so horrifying, and now it's laughable as an adult, but as a child, I was terrified, and I get a sense of this childhood terror here. Fill up my black toxic heart with your hate. (laughs) When that shoe gets dipped during the movie, it's still one of those scenes that definitely leaves a little bit of a scar with you. But you gotta remember, this is not the end of the the actual song itself, because then it goes back into there must be something, there must be something from track one. Very first track. Yeah, And, and then it does go into that haunting outro where you really feel like it's wrapping up and it, it leaves those chills, the goosebumps. And then we get Super Space Blaster Sentai Asteroid Invader Peds 2, mm. which is another skit. And this one actually... It does have a little bit of music, essentially. Yeah. It's narrative setting up. It, it's showing... Uh, it's giving us a, 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 a peering into the final track that we're going to get track 14, which is Whale Song, and it's Rabbit commenting on... Space whales flying above them, and 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 the wonder in, of in, it. We also in, learned. In herd, we also learned flock. that that title, Super Space Blasters, sent the asteroid Invader Pete's Two, is actually a game that Spine was trying to beat. Yeah, right. it was up to level fifty, or so, just like, shy of it. But good. it's it's this part is taking the focus off the story that had been built, which sort of has a conclusion now, and it brings and, it back to the Steam Power Giraffe, which is kind of what the very first track did in reverse. Right. So and, it's appropriate. And the narrative here is showing, you know, Rabbit's positivity and wonderment, you know, the short attention span of Hatchworth and how he doesn't really hear yeah, what I, Rabbit's I, saying. I love how he goes, I, I'm tired, if that's even possible, since we're robots, I'm going to try to sleep for the first time ever. And then, and then of course, <laughs> he tries to get the Spine's attention, who is trying to beat this game, and mentions the game by name, which is the name of the track. So and then Bunny takes the accordion, starts trying to come up with a song, and she can't really do it until Whale Song. Track 14, which is, I, so it's odd, a bit odd, but typical of Steam Power Draft to kind of throw a curveball for the final track just to kind of 
bring it back to being about them and being theatrical. The song as a whole, though, I feel like this is the song embodiment of the true positivity and like infectious positivity that Rabbit has on the rest of the band. And she's still, it's like her core, her centered core. While the spine keeps everything in light, and Hatchwork is the sort of the comedic side of it, but yeah. the Rabbit does a great job of just being that positivity we, we really hear in the entirety of the album. Well, what's nice also about this track is lyrically, it, she starts singing and then eventually gets the attention of Hatchworth and and the spine, who do get hooked in and then grab their instruments and they all play together. Yeah, and it, it really pushes that infectious positivity. And and I like that structure, even though the song seems like an oddball for the narrative, for Steam Power Giraffe and what they do, it's not really that odd. Yeah, at least in the, just in the fact that it was a curveball, well, at least it wasn't the same analogous of the curveball we got in the end of the first disc. Yeah. It wasn't a throwaway track. This, this at least had it... Uh, it's heartfelt and heartwarming. And, and it ended us on a more... Um, a more atmospheric air, and this time yeah. more in a sense of just sort of sit, bl- sitting back and, and floating along. You actually ha- get the sense that you're watching a whale. Yeah. Like, that you were just sitting back and watching uh, National Geographic Channel or something like that. Yeah, except it, it's flying yeah. and they're in, they're space. in space. I just watched a fascinating documentary on, on the uh, the dinosaur fish. I forget the, the actual name of uh, the, the actual, like, biological term, but it was an uh, thought to be an extinct fish. That had they discovered it in nineteen in the nineteen thirties, and apparently it still exists. They no. thought it was extinct, like from millions and millions of years ago, but it still exists, and it, it evolved to live very, very deep below in the ocean. But there is one place in southern Africa, uh, in South Africa, actually off the off the coast, where it actually makes its way into these caves that are the the highest, the closest to sea level that it's ever been observed, and also the deepest that a diver has been able to go. So it's almost as if they both came to meet each other, and there was this really serene moment where a diver is just swimming along with the fish. And that's the moment that this song brought me back to. No, that oh, was shut up. It's a, it wasn't Fantasia, but <laughs> it was Fantasia Although it is a two-hour-long documentary, so I didn't want it Fantasia too beautiful right there. And, well, that's not the end. No, we get a stinger again. Um, honestly, I don't mind that because <laughs> movies have been doing stingers for so long now. I mean, you they, know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has made a career out of it. Doing it in albums is fine, too, especially considering how theatrical they are. It makes sense. And it's it's dialogue between Home Command and, and uh, Commander Cosmo, and it hints at the idea that the next album might be about major heroics or like the rise well, of heroes don't they say something like we'll bring them all together yeah yes. in the, the Avengers sense perhaps it yeah. does feel very Avengers initiative y but Com- uh, Commander Cosmo reveals that he has the daughter that he did he knows that the astronaut is defeated so he thinks but he does discover he alludes to the fact that the Necro star is the malevolent evil that he's going to have to fight or something like that. Like, they really are standing, setting up uh, the next space opera. Yeah, but Matt pointed out a pretty good snag, uh, whereas, of course, my whole introduction to this album from the get-go was was uh, responding back to episode 72, in which we did their previous album, Mark Three and the stinger that they included there, in space. Well... Where do you go? Yeah, that's the biggest... Where do you go from space? That's the biggest problem. I, I can't really credit myself with that kind of realization. It was actually watching Zero Punctuation and Yahtzee talking about Mario Galaxy and Mario Galaxy 2, two different Nintendo games where Mario goes to space, is 
well, what the hell do you do after that? Once you've gone to space, there's nothing bigger than space. Jason went to space from Friday the 13th, and then that almost killed his entire series. They had to reboot it. I mean, it's like I said, it, it was part of the reason why I, 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 I self-justified, even though it made no difference because John was going to pick it anyway, but why I self-justified the fact that we're doing uh, this, this span for the third time, unlike almost any other artist, is because how can you avoid such a, an insatiable stinger like that, yeah. that they were going to do a themed album in space as the ultimate but I can't say I'm particularly sold on this next one. Um, given given this album, which, uh, well, we're going to get into our personal feelings on. Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously, if John doesn't pick it when that next album comes out, when Nelson Lugo eventually comes back on, he will. So either way, we may end up doing it anyway. But I agree. Oh boy. I was excited about, as opposed to Uno, Do and Tre, Uno Dos and Trey, when we dreaded the There is one. one as in when there should be two. There is there. Um, here, I, I agree with Steve. I was very much looking forward to going into space. So I guess let's all discuss where we landed with this. I guess I'll start. Um, I have this, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, I have this kind of predetermined uh, worry and anxiety when doing double albums because I always feel like most double albums stretch themselves too thin over two discs when they could be more concise and focused over one. I've referenced Stadium Arcadium by the Red Hot Chili Peppers as one of the more famous examples of how if they took the best songs on both discs and put them on one disc, it'd be a stronger album than the two discs that they gave us. That's just one man's opinion. Here, I have to say the same. It's unfortunate that there are plenty of moments on both disc one and disc two, definitely more on disc two, where I just feel like they're filling time. And I kind of understand where that's coming from. I think this as an experiment in a uh, paperless prescript, this idea that this could bury the TV show, miniseries, or movie, does make sense. There's a strong narrative here that's very compelling. But as a double album, just a double album, no live show included, I just feel like it's weaker than their previous works. I do like the highlights. Both discs have plenty of tracks that I really like. I'm not gonna name tracks because at this point, there's a ton of them. I just feel like there were still too many holes for this to stand up to their previous works. And honestly, I expected that. It's an ambitious project, this work. And for it to be as consistent as the previous albums would go against what they were trying to do. They're trying to create this larger-than-life epic narrative, and I knew that there would be issues. That said, it's still Steam Powered Giraffe. I still really, as a whole, love the whole thing. It's just going to be hard to listen to it straight through all 28 tracks. I just don't know. Like, the sketches... The final two tracks on the first disc, I absolutely safely can say I do not like. The first time there are Steam Powered Giraffe tracks, I absolutely just don't like and won't listen to. And those are two of them. Whereas the other sketches have enough com comedic value that I enjoyed. Um, Sky Sharks I ended up enjoying more and more after I listened to once I got wrapped up in the joke of it. I feel like if I can enjoy Shark Sharknado unironically and ironically, I can enjoy Sky Sharks. As a whole, though, I feel like because they had such a strong narrative drive and a strong story, the holes, the plot holes were very obvious and the holes in the music were very obvious. So that's going to hurt it. Um, all in all, I enjoyed it, but I think this is a 4.25 for me. I feel like 
it's definitely you know on the upper tier heading you know their 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 talent the undeniable talents that I will always enjoy their new music no matter what they put out unless they completely go off the rails but I just the fact that it reached for such great heights and there were so many flawed moments in specific instances that I just can't put it where the other records were but 4.25 is still respectable and I still think that they are a fantastic band well, to echo your start, um, I also have worry and anxiety when I look at double albums, but mostly it's because of the amount of coffee that I'm going to be drinking for the duration. It's a project. It's it's like it, and music shouldn't necessarily be that way, but I don't always feel that way, and I explain that very thoroughly about how I felt about the wall growing up. Well, maybe that's nostalgia. I don't know, but it definitely is. It, it's. I've said this before in the podcast that because music is an exercise in in time and it requires your your time, so do movies, so do many other things. But but music spe- specifically, it, it's it's almost it almost evades interactivity because you're just supposed to sit back and listen. And for that reason, uh, requiring a lot of your time is going to be pretty taxing, no matter how you slice it. Uh, that said. I like long. I like long songs. I like long pieces of classical music. I I enjoy that. That's that's what I anchor back to. I think strangely enough, I just appreciate it more if it is a single cohesive work. Let's say in the classical structure where you divide it up between movements. It just seems a little bit more substantial in that way. And even then, I tend to be very picky. I've more than often dismissed like sonatas by saying like, well, um, yeah, that third movement did not need to exist because all the memorable material is in the first. Or sometimes, you know, the better is the last movement. <sighs> I just... I, honestly, I am a little bit disappointed. I, I am going to say that up front. I... I I enjoyed portions of this album, and I highlighted the musical perks over the course of it, but given the 28 tracks, I think this was pretty thin. I found myself really kind of just waiting for it to wrap up, while at the same time waiting for it to start. I think that that, that's something about uh, just, that's a marketing snag. Just the nature that you have so much material that you're presenting as a double disc, it's... It's just inherent in the game that you're playing. The fact that you chose to do that, that makes it seem as if it needs to be such a grand thing. I feel like it's not something that a lot of people will accept just being like, oh no, it's just a lot of songs <laughs> that we would normally do. Uh, but there's twice the amount. I, 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 I feel like maybe I was a little closer to that. So many of these songs, despite the narrative, and this is the point that I really, really agree with Matt on, um, the plot is actually what hurt this album. The plot is is so involved that it, it, it makes this album seem so weak next to it. it. Like, I don't know how they could have fixed that. I There are several theories that I have, although I wouldn't tell them how to, how to go about creating an album, but I do know that maybe my experience of this album, I would have been a little more invested in that plot had they completely broken away from their structure, had they maybe not gone into some of the the ditties that they had on previous albums which in context to those albums seemed so incredible and and filled out their act because we were still getting uh, involved into the 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 nature of what steam powered giraffe really represents everything i read about read in the beginning that they are that they are robots and they have they have souls despite the fact that they are hesitant to admit it it's a really really fascinating concept which this album tries to get into the music is just not selling me in the same fashion. I think 
this really does require the visuals every step of the way. Even the, the tracks that I like still probably would have been better with visuals. I think this is a Broadway play that um, demands more attention than the actual music experience is 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 inviting from me, is, is persuading me to give it. So for that, you can't you can't avoid the, the the amount of effort they put into it. This is this is in the threes for me. It is is not over the fours, but I would never put it below the twos. I think this is just smack dab in the center. This is a three point five. When you stretch it out as it had been, you take out all of the moments which could have been compressed into really really pointed material, uh, and that that has been unfortunately what has made it an average album for me. But that's still good. <laughs> the Okay. I'm going to have a lot of false starts right here because it's an album that's close to my heart because of everything else that's associated with this band. I love it. Well, I love Steam Powered. They are great. I will never get over their vocals. I will never get over David's range. I mean, I will never get over the Spine's range. He's just a phenomenal vocalist and that's not begrudging Hatchworth or Rabbit's ability it's just that him I latch on to and I have to listen to him when he speaks he seems to carry a spotlight with him at yeah. times it's it's hard not to listen yeah the music was it it doesn't deviate from steam powered they, it still feels like their essence at the end of the day, even when we're talking about the curiosities of the new stuff or the new old stuff or the old new stuff. I don't know. There's, it's, it's got really confusing towards the middle. But the glaring holes of disc one, track 13 and 14, when Gigi shows up, and honestly, it was annoying listening to her prattle on. And the kind of weakness that was in the midsection of... of the second album of the second CD with Over the Moon and It's Cosmic just really not hitting the same notes I love the theme I love the fact that they really did tell a great story but I did a lot of research and I really picked apart the words and I love the story now that I understand it but it was not there the first or fifth or tenth listen no 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 way you're not gonna get it right away and in fact that's pretty much what all the fans said uh, I love the music, but I don't understand what you're trying to say. That was the biggest theme. Wow. That's why Bunny Bennett came out and said, hey, here's some clarifications on this album, blah, 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 blah. Then we had a better basis of what the theme was going to be and how the story narrated it. And yeah, they had to do that. That's not the best thing in the world, but it's not the worst thing in the world. It just means that there's more opening to interpretation of the story. But certain elements, like the main characters, I got. I got that right away. On, on the first, second lesson through. At the end of the day, while it doesn't stand up to Mark III, which I still consider to be their best, it's still a great album with my favorite vocalists of this time. So, it's a four. It's a solid rock opera that just doesn't quite step too far away from the theater aspect of a rock opera at the end of the day. Um, I do want to briefly give a quick shout out to a listener and um, requester of this 
after John had decided to do it and just was finding the right time to record. Um, the Ryan Lehue, who is a uh, at the Ryan Lehue on Twitter, had recommend, uh, requested this way, way back, and I had to let him down easy and say, we're going to do it, and we have plans for it. We're just finding the right time. So I wanted to give him a shout-out here. He said he uh, our previous episode on Mark III was one of his favorites of ours. So well, it was one of my favorite that. albums of all time. I still consider that probably my favorite um, album. I'm, I'm holding true to my 4.25. I feel like I have to praise them a bit for attempting this, and I don't want to overlook that. But that said, I totally get where Steve's coming from, too. I think this was one of those records that's kind of going to be all over the map for us because it's, it, it's a record that's all over the map. I mean, that's just... The, that's just the bare bones of it. Well, I know, and maybe this is a little my fault. I mean, you know, sometimes you vary in the stages of, of whether you're on your game or not, and that yeah. goes for any listener, not just critics, for instance. Sure. You know, it's just like certain things, uh, they evade you. And I, I do believe that what, what John said is, is that's kind of spot on. Like, if the fans don't get it, and Bunny had to had to provide it, you know, through Reddit, no less. Like, at least put on the liner notes or something like no, that. No, no, Tumblr. Actually came from Tumblr. Oh, it t- came from Tumblr, Tumblr originally, is... and then th- it, it sifted through Reddit, and that's how yeah. it arrived at the fans. It's just so removed, and it really helped this discussion. It helped us put certain things in perspective. Without it, oh, I think we'd be lost. We would have I mean, oh, yeah. we we found things. We definitely would have found things, but not on an, on an album scale. And frankly, even now, I'm still a little confused. Oh, no, you're, you're definitely allowed to be confused. Because this isn't even word of God. It's it's still not the actual explanation line by line of what uh, uh, David Bunny and and Sam said. It's it's still a lot of conjecture on my behalf. Right. And on the behalf of the fans. But a lot of what I said kind of lines up with a lot of other theories and with a lot of what the band said. So... But theme, take, take what you will. Theme isn't everything. And if yeah. this is the first Steam Powered Giraffe album of the three that we did where I feel like aesthetic didn't hold up alone. And when you have the, the beautiful combination of that with an amazing theme and a lot of personal stories that you get in Mark III, which is so far, I think, my favorite of the three, that, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely fair. I think that you're going to get very... In- overall, based on our discussion, you'll be very pleased with, if you're a fan of Steam Powered Giraffe, how we attack it. Um... Why don't we start wrapping up this episode? It's probably definitely, no, it's definitely, definitely gone on long enough. Um, Steve, why don't you give us our spam of the week, please? That's right. We're skipping right over topic because in case you haven't realized, this is somewhat of a special episode and the topic is the double disc. All right. So uh, I'll just fill that in in the Excel document as needed and we will go straight to the spam. Wonderful work. This is the type of information that are meant to be shared across the web. Disgrace on the search engines for not positioning this subject higher. Come on over and seek advice from my site. Thank you. Smiley face. By Belgravia Villas. Okay. It sounded genuine. What, 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 where was it, was it, what was it on? What was the comment on? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. You, you never think I care? It up. He just looks at it and goes, that's <laughs> funny. I'm surprised, he's, like that. I'm surprised he's continued no, to bed as long as he Belgravia has. village. I just go in order. Very yeah. deep voice you go when you say that. Yeah, I kind of went Russian on what is clearly an Italian name. Yes. Belgravia villas. I, I also still hold true. If we've repeated a spam comment, please point it out because I don't think anybody's going to find it even if we did. I would love to hear a compilation of all the bad spam. Uh, Steve, I, get on that. I know for a fact that I have not repeated one oh, okay. because all the emails that I used to get in the old days before we actually invoked the spam blocker, uh, I, I I never read any of them, <laughs> but I also never deleted any of them. <laughs> so that means that I know it's a new spam because it's an unread message nice. from sometimes as early as two years ago. Wow. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's uh, discuss what we're doing next week. So uh, next week we are bringing on our first guest of the new year and our January guest. And it will be Matt Holtzclaw, the magician, who I have um, hinted at before. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He works within the burlesque community. He's a badass. And he's actually been on Penn & Teller's new show, uh, Fool Us. Um, he performed a really disgusting but amazing magic trick. We'll talk more about that when he's on next week. And he is bringing us the latest record from Duran Duran, a band I have not personally listened to on an album scale in a while. Oh, boy. And it's their newest record from 2015 called Paper Gods. So we'll take that on next week with Mr. Matt Heltzclaw in the studio. I'm looking forward to having him on. Um, I, will, I will only um, say this before we tackle this in the week, and I will go into it fresh and accepting, but I really do not like Hungry Like the Wolf. Their, most of their music is nothing like that. So good, good, that's, good. That's an then, 80s song. Uh, then it'll be better. All right. I don't think we can be friends for the ride home because that's a great song. Ugh. You two hash that out off the air. Well, anyway, on that note, um, post a comment in this web zone. <laughs> oh God! Um, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for sticking with us through this. We hope you enjoy it. And remember, music is life, and life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.